Hey, what's up? I'm Luxa. And I'm Josh. Are you looking for a chill place to hang out online and chat about chaos magic, occultism, witchcraft, and more? Are you hoping to learn and share your knowledge and experience in a place that is welcoming for folks of all different backgrounds and identities? If so, check out the Green Machine Discord server, home of the Green Mushroom Project and Administrism. Our growing community of chaos, occultists, sorcerers, witches, and weirdos has all kinds of fun and interesting things going on. From chats and rituals to workshops, clubs, and more, there's a lot of cool opportunities to get involved. Sounds great, Luxa. How can folks find us? Well, for now, we're keeping things pretty small as we grow, so we're not advertising on any of the Discord services that do that. But folks can hit me up and I will send them a link. You can reach me at luxoccultpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at luxoccultpod. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah. Lux Occult is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Lovacheski alone has looked on beauty bare. She curves out here, she curves out there. Her parallel clefts come together to tease, and uncalipaganius wise, with fewer than 180 degrees, her glorious triangle lies. Her double trumpet symmetry, Reinman did not court. His taste to simpler curvedness, the buxom Teuton sort, an ellipse is fine for as far as it goes, but modesty away. If I'm going to see beauty without her clothes, give me hyperbolas any old day. The world is curves, I've heard it said, and straight away in it, nothing lies. Then this, my wish, before I'm dead, to look through Lovachevsky's eyes. That is Roger Zalarni from the book Doorways in the Sand. Hello and welcome to Luxacult. This is a podcast that gleefully taunts the mundane, butchers the Latin and most other languages, and also discusses a variety of occult topics. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that means that magic, and the show for that matter, are for you, if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree sometimes, because how would we ever learn anything if we were all in agreement at all times after all? And like those who attempt to be reasonable should do, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. Io Spooky Saturnalia, Blessed Spooky Solstice, Happy Spooky Hanukkah, Merry Spooky Yule, etc. I am very excited to be bringing you a very fun conversation that I had with Reverend Eric, host of the Arnomancy podcast and co-host of the WizBiz podcast. For this special holiday episode, we are, as was previously indicated, keeping things spooky as we dive into the terrifying topic, well at least for some folks, of mathematics. 
We will talk about ways that math shows up in an occult practice and how it can be used for all types of magical operations like sigil creation, meditation, and more. We will explore topics such as cryptology, prime numbers, correspondence charts, as well as speculating on questions like, are magic squares Sudoku on meth? And is history just a story of an asshole being an asshole to another asshole? Sound sigils and music also make an appearance as I reveal one of my magician's secrets, as it were. Speaking of music, I'm joined by hip hop producer, deathcore vocalist, and podcaster All in All for the episode within the episode to talk about his work as well as a recent ego magic experiment that he conducted. The topic of hyper sigils also come up as a great chat. Speaking also of music, the music that you are hearing in the background right now is from the new album Solstice by Adam Matlock's project, Nahadoth. And you can hear my conversation with Adam in episode 37, which is titled Process Versus Product and Hyper Sigil Cassette Tapes with Adam Matlock. So check that out. It's good stuff. We're going to be hearing more from the album Solstice a little bit later on, as well as some other musical treats from All in All and Thrown Out Band, and also from the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. But before we go any further, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and my guests here on the show. I feel really, really lucky to have such amazing listeners and collaborators, etc. You all are the best. I have a lot of friends who podcast, and I think that the audience of this show really does stand out in terms of how cool you all are and how much like support you show. I don't know, I could be biased, but I think this is accurate. I don't know, I'm like the most awkward person in the world when it comes to social interactions sometimes, so it's unclear to me if I'm effective at communicating this type of thing to you all or not, but I just wanted to say that I recognize and appreciate you all. Thank you. I hope all of your holiday wishes come true. I've been using social media a lot less lately, which has had a beneficial effect on both my mental health and time management, but that certainly doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you all. I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Instagram at luxacultpod. If you like the show and you are into what I'm doing, you can support it on Patreon, and if you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or whatever they call it, so give as you will. And you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. And if you're not into the whole Patreon thing, you can also support the show with money on buymeacoffee.com. So thank you so much to all of you who are already doing that. Your support really, really means a lot, and it makes the show possible, so thank you very much. Um, I want to give a shout out and fuck yeah to T.A. Grady, a.k.a. Laughing Dog, a.k.a. Mirth and Woe on Instagram for the very rad Luxacult Hello Void design that he created. You can now purchase your very own Hello Void t-shirts, tote bags, stickers, journals, and more. I'm planning to add a bunch more weird shit to the store that I created once I, like, get some downtime to fuck around with it. But everything available right now there is print-on-demand and will be delivered directly to you from the printer, leaving me free to pursue other things. Um, As well as to sell them pretty close to cost, which unfortunately isn't that cheap because I went with, like, a more eco-friendly options where I could, but anyway. Regardless, you can find a link for all that good stuff in the show notes or in my link tree. Shout out and fuck yeah also to everybody on the Green Machine Discord server, which is a shared home of both the Green Mushroom Project and Administrism. It's a huge honor and a privilege to have such cool, smart, and kind folks to work with and interact with. 
I'm going to do an update about the Green Mushroom Project after the interview. But for now, I just want to say thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts, your time, your practice, your dick jokes, and everything else with me. Much love and much love. And if anybody listening would like to come check it out, let me know and I will get you a link to that server. So I'm going to share some of my thoughts about the question of free will later on after the interview during the listener mail segment as well as an article which looks at John Dee's work through the lens of maybe like scientific materialism is what I would call it. It feels appropriate to discuss Dee and his Enochian angelic magic in this holiday episode. Plus, it's interesting to me to hear how the work of occultists is contextualized by people who are maybe like skeptics or coming from an outsider perspective. And you won't want to miss my conversations with Cliff in episode 20, titled Enochian Magic with Cliff from Enochian Today, and also episode 36 called Enochian Astrology and Math Magics, which is also with Cliff. And yes, you heard correctly, this episode is not the first time I have indulged myself in the topic of math magics on this show. So if you're into what you hear today, you definitely will want to check out episode 36. All right, let's get in the spooky holiday math mood and talk a little bit about some non-Euclidean geometry. As Roger Zalarni might perhaps urge us to do, based on the poem that I read you at the beginning of the show, let us now attempt to look through Lobachevsky's eyes. And by the way, shout out to Arsfex for sharing that Roger Zalarni poem. So this is from Wikipedia. Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky was a Russian mathematician and geometer, known primarily for his work on hyperbolic geometry, otherwise known as Lobachevskian geometry, and also for his fundamental study on the Lobachevskian integral formula. William Kingdon Clifford called Lobachevsky the Copernicus of geometry due to the revolutionary character of his work. In 1822, at the age of 30, Lobachevsky became a full professor teaching mathematics, physics, and astronomy at Kazan University. He also served many administrative positions over his career and became the rector of the school. In 1832, he married Vavara Alexnevia Moisenevia. They had a large number of children, 18 according to his son's memoirs, though only seven apparently survived to adulthood. He was dismissed from the university in 1846, ostensibly due to his deteriorating health. By the early 1850s, he was nearly blind and unable to walk. He died in poverty in 1856. In his student days, Lobachevsky was accused by a vengeful supervisor of atheism, or signs of godlessness, was what the Russians called it. Lobachevsky's main achievement is the development, um, independent from Hungarian mathematician Janos Bolyai, of a non-Euclidean geometry, also referred to as Lobachevskian geometry. Before his work, mathematicians were trying to deduce Euclid's fifth postulate from other axioms. Euclid's fifth is a rule in Euclidean geometry which states that for any given line and point not on a line, there is only one line through that point not intersecting with the given line. Lobachevsky would instead develop a geometry in which the fifth postulate was not true. This idea was first reported on February 23rd, 1826, to a session of the Department of Physics and Mathematics at Kazan. The non-Euclidean geometry that Lobachevsky developed is referred to as hyperbolic geometry, as we've heard. Lobachevsky replaced Playfair's axiom, which states that in a plane, given a line and a point not on it, at most one line parallel to the given line can be drawn through the point. So what this idea sort of like leads to in plain English is that parallel lines will not ever cross one another, no matter how 
long they are, no matter how far we draw them into space. And this is when we imagine geometry as living or taking place in the realm of what is now referred to as Euclidean space, which, as it turns out, is not exactly like the actual space in which we live. But getting back to Wikipedia here, Lobachevsky replaced Playfair's axiom with the statement that for any given point, there exists more than one line that can be extruded through that point and run parallel to another line of which that point is not a part. So eventually parallel lines might cross. He developed the angle of parallelism, which depends on the distance the point is off the given line. In hyperbolic geometry, the sum of angles in a hyperbolic triangle must be less than 180 degrees just like in the poem that we heard earlier. So non-Euclidean geometry stimulated the development of differential geometry, which has many applications. T.E. Bell wrote about Lobachevsky's influence in his 1937 book, Men of Mathematics, this following statement. The boldness of his challenge and its successful outcome have inspired mathematicians and scientists in general to challenge other, quote, axioms or accepted, quote, truths, for example, the, quote, law of causality, which for centuries have seemed as necessary to straight thinking as Euclid's postulates appeared until Lobachevsky discarded it. The full impact of the Lobachevskian method of challenging axioms has probably yet to be felt. It is no exaggeration to call Lobachevsky the Copernicus of geometry, for geometry is only a part of the vaster domain which he renovated. It might even be just to designate him as a Copernicus of all thought. All right. Hell yeah. Thank you so much to Wikipedia. All right. So I'm very stoked to share the conversation that I had with Reverend Eric. I think he does an amazing job of bringing some of these complex concepts down to earth in a fun and humorous way. There's a lot of laughing in this one. We're having a fun time. You can hear it. But before we dive in, I wanted to let you all know real quick that if you like what you hear here, you can also check out a conversation that I had with Reverend Eric on the Artomancy podcast about chaos magic and much more. If the stars have properly aligned, that should be coming out just around the same time as this episode. Hail Cthulhu! Speaking of which, let us now celebrate non-Euclidean geometry and other spooky math with some holiday music from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Well, I am here with Reverend Eric, host of the Arnomancy podcast and co-host of WizBiz and proprietor of other occult products, I guess. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, before we get too far into talking about today's topic, which I'm so excited for, Maybe we could give a little bit of an introduction to you, what you're into, what you're up to, and maybe talk a little bit about your shows and all of that good stuff. All right. Well, I've been uh, sort of a practicing occultist for, I mean, I guess since the 80s, since I was a kid. And uh, I mostly do sort of like ceremonial magic. And these days are really like grimoire stuff and PGM stuff and things like that. But I'm also, you know, a seasoned tarot reader. I've been doing tarot for decades. And I run uh, the Arnimancy website, which is a podcast and a blog and a little shop where I sell like 
you know, pre-recorded classes and some tarot books and some uh, tarot decks and things like that. Uh, and then also, like you said, I'm the co-host of this newer podcast, WizBiz, which is a podcast about the cartoon Adventure Time. But we sort of focus on a lot of the kind of more occult, mysterious parts of the show, of the Adventure Time show. And I think that kind of covers a pretty good amount of of what your listeners would care about. I don't know that they want to know anything else about me. But <laughs> if they do, <laughs> they can always ask. Okay. Well, very cool. And I just have to say, WizBiz is very fun. I'm a huge Adventure Time fan. And one of the reasons I like it so much is because it has all this kind of like fun occult symbolism in it. So to hear people who are into occultism, you know, doing this analysis and hanging out and talking about it is just so enjoyable. So very cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's I mean, it, it was definitely, you know, um, the guy I'm doing it with, Alex, he, I guess, in a way, was kind of like my mentor when I was first podcasting, like he listened to an episode of my very first podcast that I did, uh, which was called My Alchemical Bromance. And he was like, he contacted me like, Oh, hey, you're in Portland, we should hang out and talk about podcasting. And he kind of helped me get started with a lot of the stuff. So it's just fun to kind of get to collaborate with him. We had we had been throwing back and forth so many ideas and so many of them were things that were just going to be too much work like we're both fairly lazy you know it's it's just it's part of my nature i'm kind of lazy nobody thinks nobody on the outside thinks that i'm lazy but i feel it in my soul so i (laughs) (laughs) so we uh we actually had started brainstorming this really amazing fiction podcast idea you know and we were making characters and we had like plots sort of drawn out and it was going to be kind of like maybe a more grown-up version of like gravity falls taking place in oregon weird stuff happening etc etc but i'll tell you that you know the moment we started looking into it a little bit more we were like oh my god this is gonna be so much work we have to do something easier (laughs) so (laughs) so we did something easier (laughs) that makes total sense i mean we'll Gotta conserve energy. And I think what yeah. you guys have been putting out there has been super fun. So very cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's um yeah, if for podcasters out there who haven't tried it before, having a long term collaboration where you kind of split the work makes so many things easier. You have to, you know, you have to let go of some control. You know, like I, you know, Alex writes the show notes. Every time I see him in my head, I'm kind of like, oh, I would have written at least three paragraphs, but I'm not doing the show notes and I'm not volunteering. Alex can write three sentences. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) So we do a good job sort of splitting up the responsibilities. Very cool. Yeah. Collaboration can be so difficult. So, yeah, if you find somebody that you can uh, get a good workflow going with that, that's always really cool. Mm -hmm. So. We're not here to talk about podcasting. I'm sure everybody no. wants to hear more about these podcasts. We're talking it's about it's podcasts. a little meta, isn't it? We're actually going to be talking about something much more involved, Nerdy. probably. Yeah. And I'm not sure if interesting is the right word. It's definitely interesting to me. I think that is definitely important. You know, if, if you're yeah. into occultism and you, and you really want to sort of like get into the nitty gritty, even if you feel a little bit nervous about this topic, I think that it would be really helpful to you know, just to sort of give yourself a chance to maybe even just passively absorb some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, we, we're not we're not actually going to mention what the topic is until we get people really hooked, huh? But Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're going to bury this lead really deep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're talking about occult topics making you nervous. And I think that's sort of something that's really important to latch on to, because a lot of us, when we first encounter occultism, you know, 
are encountering something that society has told us is terrifying. You know, either Mm -hmm. our religion has told us this or the TV shows and movies we watch or all the stuff is constantly telling us that the occult is this terrifying thing. So most occultists who have been around the block or even halfway around the block already had kind of like that initial thing where they faced something that probably made them very nervous. Heck, how many occultists remember the feeling before their first ritual, their very first ritual? Like that was nerve wracking. I assume it was 30 years ago, but I assume I was probably scared. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're facing something new or old that still makes you nervous, you know, we're occultists. We can friggin' handle it like big whoop. And I know that there's a lot of folks that have a lot of like, I think, you know, bad memories surrounding like being introduced to this topic in school in a way that like maybe just didn't work for them or maybe just wasn't done in a very conscientious way or whatever the case may be. And so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people just have a lot of, I mean, even trauma just surrounding like, you know, being made to feel less than or whatever it was. So when I heard you introducing this topic on your show, I think that I I really heard you having like a lot of understanding and a lot of empathy for what we were just talking about. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciated that because I think that you presented it in such a way that it really did make it accessible. And one of the things that I like think about is like occultism for everyone, right? And like, Mm -hmm. so yes, thank you for putting that out there. And thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge about math magics with me today. Yay! <laughs> Yay, math. <laughs> yeah, I mean math. It's 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 funny how how many people hate the topic. It just feels like in my life, you know, I mean, it's something that I've always been, you know, I know this is a little obnoxious for people to hear, but I've always been kind of like naturally good at it. So it was never uh, a terrifying subject for me in school. But um, most people hate thinking about it. They hate dealing with it. There's that constant joke of like, oh, you'll never need geometry in real life. You know, all of these things saying that like people don't need to know math. Like what the fuck? Math is oh wait, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely swear away. <laughs> cool, because I just did. <laughs> but uh, you know, so so yeah, like when I realized that I needed to do an episode about it when I was doing my series on uh, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa I was like, nobody's going to want to listen to this episode. Like, how do I introduce this? I have to be like gentle, tender or praising, you know, uh, what is it? Intermittent positive reinforcement. Isn't that the way you get yeah, people to there was, do things? Yes, there was a lot of that in there. You, you definitely were very encouraging. Mm-hmm. You made yeah. us feel very, very comfortable as listeners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me talk about why that was so important or why I had to do an episode about math or why math is key to magic are so important in magic. So Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, I I guess I've dropped the name a couple of times now, but he was, you know, the work that he did in the 1500s is kind of like a cornerstone of modern magic. Like if you have ever done a Golden Dawn thing, if you've ever even done a chaos magic thing or any sort of modern magic thing, there's been some Agrippa in your work. Like some of what he wrote down has filtered its way down through pretty much every strand of Western esotericism at this point. So when new translations of the three books of occult philosophy came out, I read it again. And uh, it was, you know, in, in at the beginning of the second book, like right at the beginning of the second book, which is, which is his book on, uh, what is it, Celestial Magic? I'm looking at the spines of the book like that's going to tell me. Yeah, or it's it's basically his book about the planets and astrology and astrological magic and all that kind of stuff. He just outright says, 
if you want to practice magic, you have to learn math. Like there is no magic without math. And on the surface, this is sort of a an alarming thing to demand of people. But when you really start to just look at just like, you know, crack a little bit beyond the surface, you see right away that the first thing that he's talking about is like, you can't be an astrologer without math. And to Agrippa, astrology and magic are inexorably intertwined. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the old school of Athens thing, like nobody should come in here if you don't know about geometry. <laughs> yeah, which which seems harsh. But like, as a modern person, as modern people, like we are not taught about math in its cosmic fundamental nature, right? We are mm -hmm. taught about math in a very mechanical way. And the mechanics of it, you know, strips all the life and beauty and expression from mathematics. But there's a fundamental nature to, you know, number itself and to the way number works and math works, where it's definitely in a way like a descriptive language that we have of describing the universe. But the thing that's so weird about it is that the universe actually works that way and the language continues to operate in all sorts of different directions and areas that like we could never our ancestors could never have thought of like we can't even think of right like math is math is fundamental to the operation of creation Whew, that was a good rant that, that was that a good rant. <laughs> good pro math rant <laughs> thanks i was sort of like i was sort of getting lost in it i was kind of like oh yeah let's go math, math, math. math at the mouth <laughs> So, okay, well, hopefully we've been convinced about, you know, why this might be an interesting topic for an occultist to dive into a little bit. Where is a good place to start? You were talking about the nature of number in Agrippa. Can we explore that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, actually, the, the second book is is uh, of occult philosophy is a really good place to start for this because Agrippa goes through a bunch of sort of like basic numerology stuff, you know, like, you know, here's the number four and here are all of the things where four shows up and all of the ways that you can experience the number four. You know, there's four elements and four blah, blah, blahs and four archangels. And so he kind of starts that way. I would say uh, any sort of book of correspondence charts. Uh, I, I, the only two that I'm really familiar with are, you know, 777 by you know, what's his face? We're not going to bring him up this episode. And then also uh, <laughs> the Complete Magician's Tables by Stephen Skinner. Those are both two really good uh, collections. I think the Skinner one might be out of print, but you can find correspondence charts online. You can find them in Agrippa. Uh, correspondence charts almost always have a lot of things having to do with number and why number is important. And, it, you know, it gets tied through different strands of Western esotericism. Probably the biggest ones are like astrology and Kabbalah, you know, so things like, you know, the number six being associated with the sun. And if number six is associated with the sun, then things that are collected in sixes are solar. One of the things that's interesting about this stuff is there's not just one system. People listening might not be into Kabbalah, or they might not be into, um, you know, Western magic, or they might be into their own thing. And so Almost undoubtedly, there is a numerological system that goes along with your tradition. Like it's kind of inevitable mm -hmm. because the math stuff is everywhere. Uh, math as a descriptive language gets used in in all kinds of really cool 
magical operations that a lot of us do all the time without thinking of the fact that they are math or worrying about the fact that they are math. Um, people use math for creating sigils, for instance, or they use math for using magic squares. They use math when they're when they're drawing their diagrams. You know, I mean, every magic circle is is magic because it's a circle and circles are magic because they're weird math. You know, mm. I mean, that's why we're obsessed with all of the shapes and the symbols and all that kind of stuff. Uh, stuff like, you know, gematria or assigning letters to numbers or uh, anything of that nature. Like we are constantly incorporating math into our magic and not really acknowledging that it's there. Uh, and once I started to see that, I started to have a lot of appreciation or more appreciation for some of the cool uh, Renaissance magic techniques that we either take for granted or just kind of discard and don't pay attention to because there's there's some cool ones in there. Very cool. Is there? Do you have a favorite that stands out? I have three, and they can all be used together. Okay. So let me let me list them. the The first is uh, magic squares, which are uh, much much older than the Renaissance and are just delightfully fun. Like one of the first methods of creating sigils that I ever learned was using magic squares and doing i guess yeah it's it's sort of a it's it's an agrippa method but a method of sort of like uh translating a name into numbers and then tracing the numbers on the magic square for a planet in order to create like a sigil uh like a planetary sigil uh this is something that like golden dawn people will also be familiar with because they do it on sort of like a, the rose cross symbol mm-hmm. i'm not gonna say the name i think it's called a rose cross lamen, but i'm probably wrong <laughs> So that's number one. Number two, and one that people seem to um, be, you know, I, I created a, a, a web tool for this one because the math is not super fun to do by hand, but the uh, the demon name calculator, the spirit name calculator. Agrippa talks about it in, uh, I think, book two, chapter 26, or book three, chapter 26. And it's basically a way of taking an astrological chart and calculating a name out of it which is kind of fun. And then the third one that I really love is from Agrippa's fourth book of occult philosophy, where he has a, an equation. You basically take a name and you put it through the equation and the equation generates this string of numbers and the string of numbers are then looked up on this table of sigils and then you combine, it's it's a little complicated, but it's very fun. You then sort of combine all of the sigils in order to create an angelic sigil for a specific spirit name. And those look a lot like the, uh, the sigils from the Heptameron. They're not exact, but they look very similar to that style. So those are kind of my main three. And all of them are probably a little complex, but, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I unfortunately have a really easy time with math and it makes me gravitate towards mathematical stuff. How unfortunate for all of us now. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, planet, or you mentioned magic squares, which are definitely very popular. Folks who mm-hmm. are familiar with the show might have heard me talk about chaostro.com, which is a web tool that you can go and you can make sigils using planetary squares, among other things. So that's one example mm-hmm. of where you can oh, that's cool. do that um, online. But could we talk a little bit more about what a planetary square is? is or sorry what a magic square is and like how we came up with the different planetary ones and stuff like that yeah absolutely so basically a magic square is a is a grid of a certain dimension you know so uh we can jupiter's is probably the most famous so it's it's four by four so there's 16 
squares. And the numbers 1 through 16 are arranged in those squares so that they have kind of like the I don't know. I don't know what the right term is, but they're done in sort of like a, a puzzle kind of manner so that like every vertical column and every horizontal row all add up to the same number. The four corners add up to the same number. The diagonals add up to the same number. They'll even have them so that like uh, if you break it into four blocks of two by two squares, the numbers in those will add up the same. So it's kind of like Sudoku on methamphetamines, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see why something like this like this is definitely nifty like this is something where mm -hmm. you can look at this and say wow there's there's something interesting happening here yeah you know it's kind of tied to this idea of okay this is going to be something that's going to cause some groaning and skepticism in the audience but there's this concept of recreational mathematics i'm giving them a second okay <laughs> Running time over. <laughs> um, recreational mathematics is sort of this concept that like if you are comfortable with numbers or, you know, let's say you don't have a lot of things to do. Let's say cell phones haven't been invented yet and you can't doom scroll Twitter. You can you can play with numbers and you can sit down and, you know, Benjamin Franklin, for instance, loved to kind of create his own magic squares where you'd get your numbers and you'd start putting them in there and trying to figure out what sort of patterns and what sort of things you could make and create. and and part of this, you know, the reason that they're even called magical is because this was sort of something that was illustrating the weird properties of number uh, in a way that people could just play with on their own. You know, magic squares were were sort of like common pastimes you know, in, in, for, you know, I guess the moderately nerdy back in the days before we had other things to occupy our brains. Yeah, totally. The number aspect of them is really tied into kind of, you know, the early sort of idea of our cosmology of sort of like the picture of how the universe was built, um, which nowadays I think magicians use in a metaphorical sense and not in a literal sense. You can't use it in a literal sense because we know it's not true. But, um, you know, the, we we used to believe that the that the cosmos was first of all, finite, and second of all, sort of created in this nested system of spheres, right? So the earth was down at the middle, and it's where all the material stuff would kind of fall. Yeah. And then outside that, we'd have the lunar sphere, and then the Mercury sphere, and then the Venus sphere, and then the sun sphere, and then on on through the seven visible planets. I want to say this was Ptolemy's stuff, right? Yeah, Ptolemy wrote about it, but I don't think he really invented it. I think okay. that it was just sort of what everybody assumed. Okay. He 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 might have come up with some parts of it that that lasted longer, like maybe the idea of the crystal spheres or some some idea of the mechanic of how this was supposed to work, but I think it was just sort of the assumed model. Mm. Right? Like uh, astrology needs this in order to work. This model has to kind of exist for a lot of astrological stuff to fitting together. Sure, sure, yeah. So, so beyond Saturn, you had the fixed stars, the sphere of the stars, the heavenly sphere, and then beyond that, you had who knows the great beyond, the divine. Like, who, who knows what's out there? That's a long ways away. So, the magic squares, uh, or so the numbers started to get tied to the planets. Maybe kind of because of how the magic squares could work out. Like, you can't have a magic square until you have a three by three square. So that was Saturn as the first planet. Uh, so then Jupiter got four, and then, then you know Mars five, and then on and on down to uh, the lunar square of nine. 
One of the things that this helped represent was how things got more complicated and jumbled and confusing the closer you got to the material world, right? Like as you regress, well, you don't regress, as you move up the cosmic ladder, as you ascend through the spheres, you're going closer and closer and closer to the oneness of the divine. Mm-hmm. And down here, we have like the confusingness of whatever happens after the nine by nine magic square. Yeah, this is a very like platonic idea where there's these pure things being filtered down and getting kind of um, messed up or like changed as they're getting filtered down to our reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's probably totally what inspired it. I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, and so that's how we got the magic squares and why they have the numbers they do, as uh, according to Eric, who read it in a book somewhere, probably. <laughs> and I know that if people want to construct their own magic squares, there is a formula that they can use to do so. Yes. And I can put that in the show notes if you don't have it on the top of your head. <laughs> I do not have it off the top of my head. I, I, I use existing magic squares, but I don't... You know, when it comes to recreational mathematics, I tend to enjoy playing more with like prime numbers than magic squares. So I, I don't think about magic squares very often. And in fact, I don't think I've ever even completed a Sudoku puzzle. I don't know if I'm losing any street cred for that or gaining street cred, but... but Unclear yeah. to me as well. <laughs> Let us know out there, folks. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Vote. <laughs> Come, they called me the special book room. The rarest books to see, librarians too. Kept under lock and key in terrible gloom. To save man's sanity, it's pointless we're doomed, thoroughly doomed, utterly doomed. Necronomicon, the first I exude. Oh man, it's kind of hard to describe the method of using magic squares for sigils uh, without having pictures, but I will try. Sure. So... Uh, so let's say we want to make a uh, a sigil of a name. You 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 take the alphabet that you're working with. So like you know, if we were going to do Luxo, we'd have like the English alphabet, all 26 of its beautiful letters laid out in a row, and you would transform each of the each of the letters of your name into a number. So L is like way down there, probably 12. Let's say it's 12. Sure. Um, U is uh, even further down. I don't actually have them all memorized. You know, X is going to be 23 and A is one. That's so, one. Know, got... I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> and X is 24, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it X, Y, Z? Yeah, X is yep, 24. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so in some of the squares, all of the numbers fit, right? You know, once you get to the sun, where you've got a six by six grid, you've got the numbers one through 36. So you've got all your numbers there. But when you start going down, then you have to do something called a modulus operation or a modulo. And in this one, you basically take your number, uh, you know, 24 for um, for X, you divide it by the numbers you, you have available. So like if we're going to do a 
Saturn square, you divide it by nine and uh, take the remainder. So 24 divided by nine gives you 18 with a remainder of six. That's good. Hey, I'm doing math in my head on the yeah, internet. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that means that the X would would be translated to the number six. You know, L as a as a twelve would be translated to the number three. You know, and then we don't know what number U is, and then you know your A would be one. So you'd basically go, you'd you'd trace it out on the on the magic square from three to blah 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 to six to one. Yeah. So you put a little dot on each of those numbers and then connect them. Yeah. And then draw lines. Yeah. And then depending on which system you're using, you'll usually start with a little circle. So the first, the first letter will get a little circle and the last one will get a little crossbar. So you kind of have like a little sigil then. And then if you've got a double, you'll do a little loop-de-loop there, something to mark that there's a double number. And so that's sort of the basics of how you create a sigil using a magic square. But it starts, the math starts to turn into, so here's the thing, <laughs> up until up until the scientific revolution really started, there wasn't really a difference between magic and science. It, you know, every scientist was a magician, every magician was a scientist. Experiments didn't really have sort of like a scientific method like they do now. Uh, things were kind of a little more chaotic and crazy in some ways. But when we kind of when when the Western world sort of hit its magical dry spell in like the I don't know eighteen hundreds seventeen hundreds, the the mathematics side of magic stopped advancing, and the mathematics side of like other branches of knowledge continued increasing, which meant that, unfortunately, you know, our last great mathemagicians from that period were people like, you know, Agrippa and, you know, maybe John Dee and maybe some people around that time. But like math went off in a crazy direction and magic didn't keep up. Hmm. And that's sad to me. Yeah. <laughs> Because because there's still so much cool math and cool things you can do with it. So that's kind of, you know, that's one of the things that I started working on a couple of years ago and I've been sort of developing over time is what are some other cool math tricks that we can do with magic? But also diving into some of the stuff that people like Agrippa and Johannes Trithemius, you know, what they were what they were doing were you know the, the cool math tricks that they were working on that maybe they didn't really pay a lot of attention to or maybe they didn't really realize uh, how significant it could have been or how how cool some of these tricks were when they ended up being applied to other things you know 200 years down the road yeah absolutely and one of them is this this modulo idea you know the idea where you sort of count across a finite field you know like um where you've got you know 26 numbers to fit into a, a nine number space, right? That's that nine number space is what we would call a finite field. Mm -hmm. How can we modulate this big number in such a way as it will fit into this smaller space? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the method is pretty easy. You just sort of count over and over and over until you reach your spot. It's, it's, you know, we, we know it today is the remainder. Well, you know, mm -hmm. we, when we learn division in school, the remainder is basically how, how that works. That particular operation gets used, it's being, we're using it right now without paying attention to it because we are on the internet, but uh, that modulo operation is 
critical to like a whole family of cryptographic functions, you know, uh, cryptographic hashes. And cryptographic hashes never really started to be secure or anything that anybody would use for anything really significant and powerful until the dawn of, you know, electronic computers. But all of the all three of the cool math operations that I talked about, you know, the calculation of spirit names, the magic square sigils, and the calculated uh, name sigil from the fourth book of occult philosophy, all of them use the modulo function. And so all of them are kind of like weird occult granddaddies of, uh, of cryptographic hashes at least in my head. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And just real quick, for people who aren't familiar with that term, could you give us a quick definition? Yeah. So you might see it referred to a lot as a checksum, but a cryptographic hash is basically a way of... So first of all, they deal with really, really, really large numbers, but it's basically a way of running any amount of data through a function where you have sort of like the data and then a secret key, a secret number, and coming up with uh, with an output that can only be reconstructed if you have the original data, right? So there there should be no uh, collisions. Like you, if you you know, if we took short names, like if we took your name and my name and we put them through the function, they should never land on the same number. Yeah, if we like printed them each on a clear sheet of vellum or whatever, and we laid them mm-hmm. over each other, there shouldn't be any places where they like overlapped. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, there might be some overlap, but it won't be exact. Yeah, it, not like exact overlap. Yeah. 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 But oh, yeah. And so the other, the other function, the other feature of this is that it's a one-way function, right? So basically, you can put something in, but you can't get the answer out. So the only people who can prove that they were the original holders of this are the ones who can say, look at this data I'm putting into the function and see the answer that comes out is the same as yours, as, as, the, as the answer that you've already seen. So it's a, it's a one-way function. This was sort of an interesting thing to, to think about because like all of these things that we're doing with these mathematical operations are kind of like destroying information. Hmm. You know, you can't look at the, you know, the Luxa Saturn sigil and figure out that it was Luxa. You know, we might be able to figure it out that it was a four-letter name, uh, but that's it. Yeah, very interesting. Something's been consumed there, sacrificed, perhaps. Very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I started to sort of think of it that way. You know, especially it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm tying this back to like the conversation that we had on that we just had on my podcast. You know, we were talking about the models of magic, and one of them is like the informational model. And there's sort of this concept of like information as being like one of the building blocks of, of the universe in, in, in modern physics. And here in the in these you know, these mathematical functions, uh, information is being sacrificed to produce a sigil almost. Yeah, I love that synopsis. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I really I so I really started to get into that. And then I started to look at cryptography in general. So in cryptography. Uh, I should call it cryptology. In cryptology, which is the study of uh, secret writing or, you know, secret messages. Um, Again, something that all of us are using every day electronically, whether we want to or not. Mm -hmm. But cryptology was something that progressed at a very slow and weird pace, you know, for, you know, 2000 years. Or more. I think our first cryptographic messages are like encoded, encoded recipes for like beer or, or bread or something in Mesopotamia, right? So, so cryptography and cryptology have been with us forever. 
but the development of it is intertwined with the history of Western esotericism in, in, in some really, really interesting ways. Like, of course, it was always used for, you know, state secrets and warfare and all that kind of horrible stuff that none of us ever want to think about. But but it was also used by mystics and magicians and occultists and all that kind of stuff. And I guess I should probably give some examples. Yeah, that would be great. I'll give some examples and then I'll get back to the other part of my story. Okay, okay. two good examples. First, the Atbash cipher, which is a Hebrew cipher that is um, one of the dumbest ciphers ever. You just basically take the Hebrew language, Hebrew alphabet, and you reverse it and then you just substitute the letters. You know, the Atbash cipher was seen as it was used as a as a tool for like contemplating the Bible. And um, we have we have a couple instances of the Atbash cipher being used in the Bible itself, uh, but probably one of the most famous and interesting ones is that if you put, uh, if you transliterate Baphomet into Hebrew and you put it through the Atbash cipher, you get the word Sophia out of it. Oh, fascinating. And for people yeah. who don't know what that connotates, it's a, a Gnostic term referring to like a goddess of wisdom yeah. i don't want to get into a yeah. huge thing here yeah, but yeah. it's very it's very but interesting. it's cool and i yeah. mean everybody knows baphomet right like they're yeah thinking... people who are listening to the show probably know baphomet <laughs> maybe sophia yeah, well, i'm not sure <laughs> they could you know sophia it turns out the gnostic sophia has a great uh wikipedia page and they can go look it up but don't do it right now because i'm still talking <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be your listener's least favorite guest. And you'd be like, why is this guy talking about magic and, or talking about math and bossing me around? No, this is great. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> okay, and my other favorite example of this is the 10th century Islamic mystic Al Kindi, who is another just like fascinating, strange character that we can't really get into, except he discovered, he invented uh, cryptanalysis, which is the mathematical way of cracking ciphers. And he did this as part of a contemplation on the Quran. Mm. <laughs> so it turns out that like a lot of cryptology, both from the uh, hiding things and the discovering things side, have like roots and and influences from like early mystics and magicians and and stuff. And that's fascinating to me. Like I loved that about it. And so I started to think like, why not, why not do more? Why not look at what happened between, you know, like the years 1600 and, you know, 1900 when spies and governments and all these people were really the only ones using cryptography and see if any of that stuff could be used by magicians now. I love that. So before we get into all that, because I'm so excited to hear about it, how do you feel about taking a bibliomancy break? I thought I think that that is sort of a cliffhangery spot to do it, and it's kind of perfect. Like I I'm love ready. It. I have no <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa from the future. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far, as well as the fun holiday music from the album Very Scary Solstice from the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. There will be a link to that in the show notes. 
excited to hear more about mathematics and cryptology or cryptography when we return to my chat with Reverend Eric. We're also going to be diving in for that bibliomancy break in a little while. I'm also going to be back during a break to share an article from New Scientist about how John Dee's work should be appreciated by more than just students of the occult and those interested in Enochian magic. But now, it's time for the episode within the episode. I spoke with producer, musician, and occultist all in all to talk about his new podcast, Others, and his musical work, and a recent ego magic or identity magic experiment which he conducted. Folks who experience performance anxiety might find some inspiration here for sure. After our conversation, I'll play a track from Thrown Out Band, a deathcore project which all in all is the vocalist for. And to lead us in here, let's hear some of a hip-hop track that he produced. This is People and Places. Yeah, today my guest is all in all. How are you, dude? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fuck yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. So for those who are unfamiliar with your work, would you mind giving like a quick intro, like what you're into, what you're up to and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I'm a producer and a musician. Uh, I guess my, my solo work goes under the name All in All, and then uh, which is, you know, mostly like lo-fi hip hop stuff, kind of hip hop as well, just stuff in that vein. And then also my main focus is my band Thrown Out. And thrown out is like a deathcore kind of heavy metal, heavy metal outfit. So and uh, uh, the, a new podcast I just started. So that one's uh, that one's going to be taking up a lot of my time here pretty soon too. Yeah, fuck yeah. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your podcast because it definitely sounds like a really cool project and honestly some kind of like legit journalism in a way. Like so, yeah. Tell me, tell me about this. Yeah. So others was born out of a kind of the idea of othering. So I, I've seen it in, you know, a lot of spheres uh, of society, but um, Philip K. Dick does a good job uh, illustrating it in a handful of his novels. He's one of my favorite authors. And uh, it's something I honestly saw when I was, you know, you know heavily involved in, in, in the church before, something that kind of, kind of, kind of scared me a little bit, I guess, seeing the rise of what I believe to be Christian uh, nationalism. So I have started a podcast that's intentionally kind of reaching out to the fringes of pretty much the artistic world. It's a, in, I'm intending to explore, you know, a variety of formats, you know, all, all sorts of art, artistic mediums. Thankfully, I got a handful of friends and, and a handful of different mediums. So, you know, I got a good start. But yeah, it meant, meant to explore ideas that are con- usually considered to be a little bit more fringe. Uh, another aspect of it is kind of, I guess, my my ordering of <laughs> ways in which I would like to record. But the, the, the primary one, primary one is that I would really like to be in the, in their space. So if that means uh, for a band maybe being present in the rehearsal space or so far it's been uh, at shows that I've played with uh, my band thrown out, we end up with a little bit of time 
before we go on uh, every show because you know we got to show up early, load in, check in, all this good stuff. Then we end up with a couple hours to kind of sit around and not do much. So we're utilizing that time to kind of make friends, go out and meet 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 these other bands, check out their merch and whatnot. And uh, we started having these really cool conversations, you know, uh, during these sessions and. I was having a hard time imagining how in the world I would squeeze in time to fit in a podcast to my schedule and uh, realize that that would be the perfect time. So that's uh, that's been the initial start of it. Is the first interview was uh, at our merch booth. You know, right, you know, we were merch buddies with another band called uh, Atrocitus, and then um, the second one we just put out was with uh, this amazing band called Dolores, this hardcore band. But we were in uh, hanging out with them in the green room at the Destructive Warehouse, which is a really cool venue. Just opened up in Fresno. It's uh, kind of punk rock DIY venue. It's amazing. So, yeah, I uh, was able to capture a conversation uh, in there as well. But um, I have other interviews lined up. Uh, my buddy, Eddie Rodriguez, is an incredible, incredible artist. I'm hoping to kind of hang out with him in the studio and, um, yeah, really get a, get a feel for their, their space, whether, um, whether that's where they're presenting it or whether that's where they're creating it. Fuck yeah, very cool. So tell me a little bit about Thrown Out Band and like the most recent album. You mentioned that it had a sort of esoteric twist to it. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So before I uh, delve into this, I just want to make make it you know clear that my band members, they're not into any of this weird junk that I'm into. <laughs> Um, they have <laughs> they all have a, a wide variety of beliefs you know there's a catholic in the band and some of the other guys are agnostic and stuff like that and uh i think one of us might even be atheist it's just it's, it's just to say that you know all the stuff i discuss here has nothing to do with you know their their goals and intents with the band i clear it with them i've talked to them about a handful of this stuff they usually get a little weirded out and then i <laughs> leave them alone but it's like it's important to me that they that they understand some of the weirder kind of practices I'm doing or things I'm delving into and using our music as a vehicle to, to express that. Fuck yeah, very cool. Yeah, we, we started a lot of bands recently. We've been running all kinds of bands that seem to have formed during, you know, 2019, 2020, you know, right around COVID time, you know, everyone had a lot of downtime, so it's a lot of bands performing. We are one of those bands and my guitar player had started naming our songs that we were writing and um, I assumed they were just working titles and they were uh, but when, one day when we were talking about it, he mentioned that they were the name of uh, different Dark Knights from uh, a DC story arc called Metal. And the more he told me about it, the more it seemed to kind of tie in with the things that I was writing about already, which is um, exploring the Tree of Death or, you know, kind of the, the underside of the, the Tree of Life. I saw a lot of overlap kind of parallels this story, which isn't to say, you know, it may or may not be in there, but it just seems like there's so many different parallels that I was able to explore the topics that I was already discussing through this uh, through this story. So it's even on our merch and stuff like that and whatnot. We kind of leaned into it after that. Each of the songs is named after a different Dark Knight. Yeah. So uh, one quick thing to mention about the Dark Knights uh, is that there's seven of them, which I was, you know, coming from a Christian background, I'm able to relate to the the seven seven deadly sins or seven deceits of God, which is a kind of almost extra biblical idea. They're ideas that are found within the Bible, but just kind of built built upon by the church. So I, I, again, a little bit of overlap. The story starts out with them kind of entering down a labyrinth. Batman end up, ends up acting as a doorway into this dark underside of the universe. So, uh, yeah, just really easy for me to kind of see that as the, the cliff off, you know, um, which I was actually going through. The story overlaps, you know, I don't want to go too deep into that because it gets really nerdy really quick. I'm here for nerdy, dude. <laughs> but... 
Well, I'm not sure if I understand it, to be honest. The DC uh, multiverse stuff gets convoluted really quick. It's like so much stuff to keep track of that, you know, I sat there and tried to kind of piece it together. For me, I think the important part of the story as far as uh, the art I'm presenting is, yeah, these seven seven dark knights kind of embodying the, the seven deadly sins for me. And then that kind of coincided with me exploring the uh, the cliff off with a with a with a group that actually I found online. So part of what led me out of the church was uh, studying the the overlap of manifestations of the spirit. I became you know uh, fascinated with um, healing in particular and miracles and how they manifested. Uh, my goal was to create you know help create environments where and techniques learn techniques that that would allow us to facilitate this. Then I started seeing that a lot of these things are present in all sorts of other traditions, you know, uh, esoteric or not. One example is translation by faith, which is essentially teleportation. There's another called spirit travel, which is uh, essentially remote viewing. And, and there's also a hand, you know, curse work and stuff like that. So I started seeing a lot of overlap and started questioning that. And eventually that led me to just studying, you know, all sorts of esoteric stuff, starting with Lieber Null. So I got into chaos magic really early on, which was a great kind of philosophy, I suppose, for me to explore, you know, all these other systems and different uh, schools of thought. Fuck yeah, dude. I love it. Well, I want to ask you more about the seven and the number seven, because this is going to be part of the episode in which we talk about math magic and whatnot. But before we get to that, would you mind sharing with me about the ego magic, or at least maybe that's how I would contextualize it, like the sort of um, experiment that you did with maybe identity magic, or I guess you could maybe even think about it as maybe invocation. I don't know. I'm curious to hear about like how you contextualize this. Yeah. So um, this is all stuff that kind of like so much of the techniques I'm using are just a you know snowball mishmash of all this stuff I've studied over the years. One book in particular that was uh, useful to me was uh, it's called Brain Magic by Phil Farber, which is uh, you know there's a lot of NLP and hypnosis stuff in there, but um, for me kind of read like a workbook for chaos magic almost. So I began to see or come to the conclusion that one of the most efficient ways of utilizing this, these techniques is it seems to be finding ways to manifest externalize a lot of these subconscious processes that are going on kind of under the hood, I guess, for lack of a better way of describing it. And by externalizing it, we're able to we're able to kind of face it head on or deal with it or um, kind of explore it in different ways. So that, yeah, that book gave me a handful of techniques to use and whatnot. And then, you know, I, I do love just I guess uh, Mitch Horowitz calls it anar anarchic magic. I think it's uh, very much indigenous. A lot of these uh, practices remind me of uh, brujeria, but you know, allowing intuition to kind of drive a lot of your your uh, workings. I guess. So I was having um, this interesting problem. I was uh, you know starting to play live. We've only been playing for about eight months now. So early on, I was pretty I guess pretty badly out of shape. Uh, I thought I, I didn't think I was that bad off, but um, having a lot of trouble performing. If you've never sang like this before, it feels a lot like kind of putting your finger in a socket and trying to <laughs> trying to trying to make sounds. Um, every muscle in your body just tenses up, and it's really hard for that not to happen when you're uh, when you're performing like this. Which is why I don't know if you've ever noticed, but a lot of heavy metal vocalists don't move very much. You know, it's uh, rare to see ones that are running around on stage and stuff like that because it's really easy to just stay there kind of tense and locked but i was having the issue of just you know by the end of the show this is kind of a gross little fact but i would always end up throwing up i'd end up heaving up getting sick you know uh, really just emotionally overwhelmed physically overwhelmed so immediately after i'd get done performing i'd kind of go 
find somewhere to hide and uh, yeah, likely end up in the bathroom, you know, having a hard time getting myself put back together. And, and, uh, and then, yeah, just experiencing these uh, enormous waves of kind of manic depression for days and sometimes even a week uh, afterwards. Oh, A Molecule More is a great book, too. I don't remember the author, but that, that kind of helped me understand um, the, some of the chemical processes that are happening as far as like how I'm generating dopamine and becoming saturated with it and the body kind of just the way of dealing with that just cuts all of it off, you know, which explains the next day, you know, feeling this, this horrible sort of withdrawal effect. So I created, a, well, I guess it's more like I compartmentalized a part of myself. So inspired by a lot of scripting techniques I've read for automatic writing and the like, and also uh, recently coming across Aiden Walker, I believe that's how you spell it. Yeah, yeah. Which was recommended to me by, by our group quite a bit. Yeah, Aiden's awesome. Yeah, there's a handful of sections in there, which were pretty much, they're essentially scripting uh, for hyper sigils, for the creation of a hyper sigil, which touching on that, that's exactly what I'm doing with all the Dark Knight stuff. And that's what I believe they were doing when, when they wrote this story. When I see all these different weird synchronicities happening and overlap with all sorts of spiritual practices and stuff like that. So I wrote out a script of what I uh, believed I needed to embody, you know, on, on stage in order to, to perform, you know, with confidence and have presence and not feel not not feel this you know enormous kind of withdrawal afterwards and um yeah so i wrote out these a lot a lot of these qualities that i wanted to embody i'm not i'm not i'm not a fan of the well i want to say i'm not a fan it's not as it's not doesn't feel very effective for me to do the writing out the intent and crossing out the letters and stuff like that. I did that for a long time, but the most efficient technique for me seems to be just allowing myself to go in a hypnagogic kind of state of consciousness and intuitively just draw draw the sigil, you know, while meditating on the intent behind it. So I did that and created created a sigil to embody uh, what I had scripted out. And then I, in that state of consciousness, listened and asked what his name would be. And I heard the name Haim. And so I took that and I folded it into fours because that's been resonating with me a lot lately, uh, which is weird. I don't, I don't particularly care for the number four, but it's been popping up a lot lately. So I, f I folded it into a square essentially. And then I, I bit it one on each side that uh, ties very much into me studying uh, a lot of Brujaria recently and a lot of, um, a lot of curse work tends to emphasize the, the power of DNA. So um, whether that's in spit or blood or whatever, uh, even even so far as a footprint. Uh, one of the more interesting curses I found was to nail a person's footprint um, as, a, as a means of stopping them. A classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the idea of like sympathy is really important in a lot of different traditions, like things that were once connected always are sort of connected or maybe like even entangled. I don't know. So yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's inspired by that, you know. It just, it, it, it just in, in the matter, you know, moment of intuition felt like that would that would be a powerful, powerful means of doing it. Tucked it in my back pocket, went on stage, and yeah, I just it it was felt very empowering. I mean, it always feels like another me kind of <laughs> takes over a little bit when I'm when I'm performing, but uh, more so than ever, it felt like I was almost a, uh, an observer. So. But yeah, it didn't, no more, no more uh, after show sickness, no more, um, you know, massive waves of, you know, these uh, depression and whatnot. And it's, uh, it's very much inspired me to, to explore uh, similar techniques. Yeah, I, I'm coming up with a system for, for manifesting the different states of consciousness that, you know, whichever I need at the moment, in other words. I have one already that I had been working with previously uh, named uh, Elaine, and that's something more of, I guess, like childlike wonder i guess so that's actually what i what i manifest or embody when i'm uh, or invoke 
I guess would be a better word, creating when I'm when I'm working on on, on writing uh, writing lyrics and writing uh, beats and all this other stuff. I I work on um, even when I'm doing my editing for my podcast. Fuck yeah! No, I love that. This came up in I think it was the last episode that this idea of like having these creative alter egos it can be so fucking useful and yeah the fact that it's prevented you from experiencing this like you know kind of anxiety that knocks you so far off kilter that you're like messed up from it days later like yeah i just i think it's so cool it's such a useful tool and so you told me that the name hain had some significance do you mind sharing about that yeah, I, I immediately Googled it, to, you know, inside of curiosity. It didn't, it didn't seem like anything familiar. And uh, I looked, I saw that in uh, Hebrew, it, it meant life. It's Chaim, uh, uh, I believe, um, or something to that effect. I'm sure I'm saying that completely wrong. But um, so that, that, that was another uh, interesting kind of little discovery, I guess, you know, and, um, and, and again, you know, that's, that's part of the fun of the work is exploring yourself, really exploring these different parts of yourself that maybe don't even always have uh, permission to, to be present. So I feel like society has a really good way of kind of hemming us in and, and defining what it expects of us. And um, it's easy to find ourselves kind of caught caught up in that. Actually, the, the beginning of all of this is, is, a, is very much a dark night of the soul kind of moment. And um, again, I do very much believe that that's what's being explored in, in, in this uh, story arc that was written. All of this led to the exploration of my own imaginal space, which is called the Iron Mountain. And um, there was all sorts of synchronicities happening around that all around my life as well. I even, I've even found a, a, a tunnel that leads to our own uh, tavern that's uh, covered in luminescent green spores, you know. Dude, I have a tunnel that leads from my, my place too. I don't have a fucking cool name for it like you do. <laughs> but yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'm gonna have to think of one. That's been incredible, and that 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 I heard as well. I heard that in, in, in again in meditation, I guess, hypnagogic states, which I'm very big into to exploring. But I, you know, all of my song titles typically come from that too, if not bibliomancy. Uh, that's why I thought it was interesting that you do uh, you emphasize bibliomancy a bit because uh, it's it's not uncommon for me to flip through whatever books on my studio speakers and randomly pick something out. Okay, so. Will you tell me about the significance of the number seven for you? Yeah. So, you know, obviously background with my background being in Christianity, it's a, you know, it's the number of perfection. So it's, it's a, you know, you see it a lot in, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, which my lyrics, you, you'll see if, if you're familiar with the book of Revelations at all, you'll kind of notice like I'm constantly kind of hinting at that imagery. I view the apocalypse as, again, some somewhat of a dark night of the soul where some sort of schism kind of happens in your psyche that causes you to kind of kind of to, to realize that you're caught, you're caught in that trap I mentioned, you know, this uh, this trap of expectation and definition, you know, at some some point, you know, you kind of kind of start recognizing that um, you've kind of created a scaffolding around yourself, uh, kind of some a barrier to, to who you who you really are, actually. Fascinating. So you're saying that the apocalypse is something that happens on an individual basis. It's not necessarily about like a big world event, per se. Yeah. And, and that seems to be uh, common with a lot, of, a lot of these types of stories, you know, even something like if you mean Dante's uh, Inferno. You know, I, I tend to view a lot of these things uh, as as sort of these forays and active imagination within within you know oneself. And um, I've heard them you know referred to as ascension text or sometimes uh, descension text. You know, um, even something like Alice in Wonderland can be viewed in that way. You know, sure, sure, yeah. Divine feminine descending into darkness and kind of exploring these different parts of herself and uh, in an attempt to, to reconcile it. And I do believe that is the point of, of a lot of these texts. So yeah, even something like Revelation, I, I, I view in I view in that light. 
Hell yeah. Well, that's super interesting. All in all, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. I definitely want to talk more about this stuff sometime for sure. There's a lot here I think that we could go deeper into, but until then, where can folks find your work? Yeah, so everywhere really. If you uh, all of my music is on all every uh, every sort of uh, streaming service, so um, and it's all in all. That's A L I N A L, and uh, also um, thrown out. Uh, thrown out again is on on also uh, all streaming media, all of, all social media. Instagram is kind of the one we're the most active on. So um, yeah, you know, check us out and make sure you tell us hi and whatnot. We love to we love to talk to everyone. Okay. Well, do you have any last thoughts or words of advice for the listeners? That's a good one. Part of uh, kind of what led me to all of this was uh, attending Father Bronx Mystery School. I don't know if you've ever heard of his interesting endeavor. I'm not familiar. One of the things as part of his his whole curriculum really kind of gets forces you to get that elevator pitch down, like pretty much like a statement to encapsulate what your art is about pretty much. And he emphasized, strongly emphasizes being able to say it in a sentence, but yeah, like a sentence of three sentences, you know, I have struggled so much with that, like, like coming up with a, a, a very concise way of kind of uh, saying what I do or even explaining what it is I hope to do, I guess. So, and, and even, even the exercises you have on there is almost an exercise in shadow work, you know, <laughs> these questions he has you asking yourself about your childhood and whatnot, all this stuff, you know what I mean? Really kind of trying to drill down what it is that you're, um, that you're, you're wanting to express with your art, you know, if I had advice and, uh, yeah, it's borrowed advice. So it's part of a little part of a quote from Timothy Leary, but it's find the others that, that, uh, that's the end of a very cool quote of his that really kind of points out a lot of what I'm talking about when you recognize that, you know, maybe you don't quite think the way other people do, maybe you don't behave the way other people do. And, uh, you know, once you've realized that and kind of begun, began working through that and, and, and uh, kind of agreed with yourself to begin cultivating a, self, a sense of self-agency, the next step is to is to find others, to find others like you. Our, our group is de- definitely a, a, a great place for that. It's been a great place for me to kind of explore, explore these topics with other other creatives. Yeah, that would be my advice, find the others. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to kick it with me. This has been very enjoyable. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much to All in All. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to his Enthrown Out fan stuff. 
I think it's really fun to hear these different styles of music that he's involved in making. I'm curious to learn to sing like that. I think it'd be fucking rad. Anyway, the idea of finding others was a really important factor for me in deciding to make this show, and is also pretty central to the Green Mushroom Project as well. As a side note, All in All and I met in the book club that we have on the Green Machine Discord server, and he's one of many examples of the cool and talented people who have been gathering there to connect, hang out, and be inspired by each other's creative and magical work. Fuck yeah. Shout out to everybody there, and to Miguel, Samuel, and everyone else in book club. I'm stoked to read some Patrick Rothfuss with y'all next. Alright, I will be back in a little while to talk about John D, and we will hit the topic of free will later on during the listener mail segment. But now, let's hop back in for more of my conversation with Reverend Eric. We're gonna hear about cryptography and the Playfair cipher and all kinds of other fucking cool shit right after this bibliomancy break. Leading us in... Let's hear more from Adam Matlock's project, Nahadith, from the album Solstice. This is some of the track Endless Dusk. You said you do have your dice? Heck yeah. Oh, okay. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Well, do you have a question for the Oracle? You can ask whatever you like. Yeah, I do have a question for the Oracle. I think I need a little bit of guidance on which of the Arnomancy related projects that I have going, which one should I be focusing my attention on? All right, very good. Please roll a d4 and a d8. I was hoping that I got to use one of my d12s. I never get to roll a d12. Apologies. I modified the tables to be a d4 and a d8. You're as bad as Wizards of the Coast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, hold on, hold on. I got a d8 and I've got a d4. There's a lot of dice in here. Okay, here we go. Okay, are you ready? I am. On the D4, I got a three. And on the D8, I got a seven. All right. So this is going to be from the house at Pooh Corner by A.A. Line. I will be oh. right back. I'm going to go okay. and grab it. <laughs> All right. I have located this text. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Oh, Eris, please advise which Arnomancy related project should Reverend Eric be focusing his attention on now? Bigger. And at least it was Eeyore coming out. With a shout, they rushed off the bridge and pushed and pulled at him, and soon he was standing among them again on dry land. Mm. Hmm. So it starts out with bigger. So if there's yeah. something that's like the big <laughs> the big fish, I would fry that one right. first. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's immediately I was kinda like, well shit. <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. I know. I know the project. I know the project. Okay. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. Harris. Thank you, Harris. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> All right. So this is the point in the interviews that I'd like to ask my guests divination related questions. Since you're a tarot reader, mm. I feel I yeah. should ask you, is there a tarot archetype or card that you feel that you identify with or you've been really into recently? Oh, <laughs> that is just such a difficult question to ask. I mean, doesn't everybody want to say like some awesome card? I mean, they're all awesome in their own way, I feel like. Yeah, some of them are awesome in the bad way. But that's still awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I've talked true. to a lot it's of true. folks. They're like, I'm a tower, like all the way. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> rad. <laughs> like, I had a I had a period of time in my life where the tower card kept cropping up over and over and over again. And a friend of mine made me, there was, there was a meme going around a, a while, a few years ago, uh, showing like a tarot deck and it was like oops it's all towers yes i saw that one too 2020 all towers <laughs> a friend of mine made that deck for me <laughs> and made me a tarot deck that's like all towers and that's I was like, oh, so great. funny no is it are they all towers of the same like deck or are they different tower cards from different decks oh it's basically just the rider weight tower printed out over and over and over again. okay cool because I feel like you could still yeah. read with 78 tower cards of with different pictures. Towers, <laughs> you could. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know that I totally identify it with the tower. I think I think that I have cards that I aspire to and cards that sort of grip a hold of me frequently. I think that the the magician is is probably the card that I would like to be but I probably end up getting stuck as the hermit more often than that. Mm -hmm. And then the card that I kind of always, you know, want to see is, is the star. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you have any thoughts about divination just in general that you would like to share with the listeners? Wow. That's a good one. I do have one thought about divination and that's if you, if you, are looking out your window and you see a bird fly by, do not ask Sam Block what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so no I, augury. <laughs> <laughs> no augury from Sam Block. Yeah, okay. I mean I <laughs> I did that the other day. I was like, oh man, there's a there's a there's a hummingbird and blah 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 blah. I wonder what that means. And Sam's like, well where was it? What color was it? Like blah blah blah. And I'm like Which direction was it flying? Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was, an, it was sort of a negative augury. But the the thing is when I look out my window, uh there's only one place where the birds could be. So it's not a fair augury. Sure. Okay. Don't augur on a However, slanted horse. <laughs> it was still kind of accurate. So I don't know what that means. Do I need more birds? Do I need a different window? I don't know, but let us know when you figure it out. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I will. Stay tuned. All right, so I'm so excited. I'm probably going to ask you about prime numbers in a little while, but we are talking okay. about cryptography, and you were talking about how you'd been wondering what applications that it might have for us modern occultists. So, so cryptography ended up being used as sort of a recreational mathematical thing uh, quite a bit in the in the 1900s and in, including shit who's the goth dude poe um, edgar, edgar Allan poe, poe. <laughs> goth dude you know raven goth guy dude, you know 
<laughs> never more. <laughs> um, so Edgar Allan Poe used to do this sort of like a newspaper challenge where he's like, you know, send me your codes and I will break them. And he would, you know, crack people's codes in the newspaper just as sort of like a hobby. Like it was just sort of a thing he did. That's very fun. It is. It is. And it, it all sort of happened because um, doing cryptography by hand is uh, it's kind of tough and it's error prone. And a lot of times that the, the error prone nature of it makes it so that like if you screw up like one part of your, you know, cryptogram, it's screwed up from there on out and you can't read any of it. But also there was a, you know, sort of a behind the scenes war going on, a cryptographer's war going on where where mathematicians and code creators were constantly trying to create better, be- better and better codes. And this generated lots and lots of stuff. But the the dross or the fallout of this was that there were a lot of uh, cryptographic techniques that you could do by hand that were kind of easy and sometimes fun. And sometimes, and this is where it started to get really interesting, sometimes they would enable you to encode a message using another message that you could, for instance, take from a sacred book or a prayer or uh, something of that nature. And in fact, it got it happened a lot. Uh, my favorite of this, and this is something that your listeners could definitely look up and learn how to use, is the, the Playfair cipher. So the Playfair cipher is basically a magic square of letters. It is a, a five by five grid. You fill up the grid with all the letters you want to use. It, it works well with uh, you know, with English, you can drop I or J or you can drop V or W, you know, because mm-hmm. we have too many letters. There, some of them are bullshit. We have extras. It's true. Yeah, we've, they're, they're extras. You can even drop C. Like, who the hell even needs it? You've got K and S. Exactly. I wonder that all the time. <laughs> so you fill up your grid. But the way that you make the grid. So, for instance, if I want to send you a secret message, Lexa, I would say something like, you know, use the fourth chapter of the Winnie the Pooh book that you just picked up. And then I would have to go get the same book. And then there's a method for taking, you know, like the first couple sentences of that chapter to make one of these Playfair grids. And that grid is is the key, the, the cryptographic key that you can then use to encode a message. Okay, very cool. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's a it's easy and it's fun. It involves books, which people love, which we love. But the other thing about it is it resists it resists most of the easy cracking techniques that people are going to be willing to do in their free time, mm-hmm. right? Like sure. cracking a Playfair cipher takes a lot of work, you know? So uh, the, your, your recreational hand crypt analyst, hmm, I don't know if that term has ever been used before. We should write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> your, your recreational crypt analyst who's doing it by hand is not going to get very far with a play for a cipher before they give up unless you're up against like the nerdiest of evil wizards in which case you're gonna need more help than absolutely (laughs) (laughs) may the gods help you (laughs) yes (laughs) um so one of the things so i was talking to my friend uh andrew watt about this uh as i was sort of like trying to figure out where i was going with this cryptography stuff and he immediately saw it and he's like oh that's the mars magic square can you use the magic squares of the planets for any of this sort of stuff? And the answer is not super easily, but you can totally use the Mars magic square to do your Mars talismans this way. So it's a great key for that. You you can actually just transform the Mars magic square into a Playfair cipher because it's got the numbers one through 25 and you just figure out what each, what letter each number corresponds to and you're done. But um, 
But I started playing around with it for and, and combining it with other methods, right? So let's say you want to petition, I don't know, Jupiter for something. So you find a text related to Jupiter. Maybe you find uh, like an Orphic hymn to Jupiter and you use that Orphic hymn to create a Playfair cipher. Uh, you then take your message and you put it through the Playfair cipher to encode it. And then the, the cipher text that comes out of it, which is a weird jumble of of letters, you put that through Agrippa's method for generating like a name sigil. So you end up with these long, strange sigils, which are like double encoded. It's interesting. Okay, so here's where my brain went with this. First of all, you're encoding a message using something personal to the power that you are petitioning. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the Playfair cipher part. Second, you're sacrificing information using the sigil creation method. So you have this sort of double thing going on with both like a direct connection and an offering. Yeah. 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 All with all with numbers, all with math and and language and and information being sacrificed. Very slick. I absolutely love it. Very cool. Yeah, and so I've experimented with that. It's, you know, I think chaos magicians in general are kind of used to sigils being created more quickly and a little bit more erotically. <laughs> than... Sometimes, I mean, it really depends. I mean, I guess it I think, does, uh, but... yeah, I, I would say that a lot of people do use erotic energy to charge the sigils, but a lot, a lot oftentimes the sigil creation process can be very organized and meditative and incredibly intentional and stuff like that, depending on what kind of things people are into. There's all kinds of folks out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, and I guess, you know, it's definitely creating a sigil in this manner is, um, far easier than spending you know 12 years writing a comic book sure yes yeah Yeah, so that was sort of uh i think that was sort of the the pinnacle of my exploration you know one of the problems that you run into and i've played around with some other stuff too you know after looking at this like the history of cryptography actually there's a really good book anybody who's listening if you'd like to read a book by somebody who thinks magic is bullshit but really loves cryptography Simon Singh, his last name, S-I-N-G-H, has written a book called The Codebook, which is basically like a history of cryptography written for lay people and people who hate math. Well, okay, you cool. have to you can't hate math, but he goes through sort of uh, what we know, you know, sort of like archaeologically and historically what we know about where cryptography came from. He doesn't necessarily explore a lot of like the extra geeky super freaky mystical stuff at all but it'll give you a really really good overview and he also starts to talk about some of the problems that you run into you know hand cryptography gets more and more complicated it's easier and easier to screw up and it's always resistant to being cracked like we do have some weird like royal ciphers that are complicated in ways that i don't want to get into that you know, every once in a while, it'll be like, oh, we cracked, you know, Henry II's, you know, lunch menu from 1652 or whatever. That wasn't Henry II. That was <laughs> probably a Charles or even a, what was the, what was the asshole's name that won the English Civil War? Cromwell. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> it like, well, there's been a lot of assholes. I'm not quite sure which one you're referring to. <laughs> history is just all assholes all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of all assholes. It's sort of a history of assholes, isn't it? It's just the story of one asshole being an asshole to another asshole. <laughs> So, so, uh, so hand cryptography just keeps getting more complicated and sometimes you, you know, so, and like today we have 
you know, Neil Stevenson came up with this with this hand cryptography method that uses a deck of cards, which is really cool. You can use like, you know, a daily bridge column in a in a local newspaper if they just I assume both those things still have to exist, though. You still have to have daily newspapers and a bridge column. But a bridge column will have enough information that you can sort of lay out a whole deck of cards and you can use that as your cryptographic key. And then the problem is the method itself is so complicated that I I taught a class on, on cryptography a while back and I tried to teach the class how to use this method, but I couldn't even encrypt a message to myself and then decrypt it. <laughs> reliably and i tried for like weeks i was like all right all right i've almost got it and i'd always screwed up somewhere and i was like there's no way i can get a room full of people to learn this like this is it's a cool technique but it's just too complex and too easy to screw up uh, and that's kind of what happens with a lot of hand cryptography so for me doing this isn't necessarily about making you know uncrackable secret messages as much as it is you know, a, a contemplative exercise in uh, enjoying the mathematical manipulation of language, the encoding of secrets using sort of like a, a combination of, you know, sacred texts and intentions or spells or whatever, and putting them through these sorts of things to generate the types of sigils and symbols that like, I haven't seen anybody else doing. And I don't know what that means about the level of basement nerdhood that I have sunken into, but uh, but I do live on a second story apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I really, and I think that there's a lot here too. So in Chaos Magic, we talk a lot about this idea of losing the sigil, like in your mind, like the sigil is kind of. I think Spare writes a lot about this too. This oh, idea yeah, that yeah. this, you know, the sigil should be abstracted enough from its original meaning so that it kind of maintains a sort of sympathetic connection with it but it's not a direct correlation anymore so I, I love this idea of like doing this in this very intentional way like you know sublimating it however you want to say it in like a very organized way that has a lot to do with the intent behind it I think it's really cool yeah I think actually thank you thank you I, I think that it could work really well so you know I don't do a lot of uh, straight chaos magic like most of the stuff I do is, is fairly planetary based or you know PGM based so there's 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 I guess it's kind of spirit based a lot, but I think that it could work well with chaos magic because it is still, you know, I mean, almost all of the sigil methods that I've seen do involve this kind of like information loss processing. Like they're almost all one way operations where, you know, the, the Grant Morrison method, you know, where you like write out the intent and eliminate vowels and duplicate letters and then like munge everything together into some sort of piece of art, you know, using all of those letters, like that is totally a type of hash, you know, you're, you're putting information in and there's no way you can get out again. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll share here, and I haven't really talked much about this publicly, but I think this is a perfect time to share it, is sometimes I like to use my own cryptographic method to like to put like sound sigils into the intro music of the show. Oh. Each show will have its own sort of like little intro music and it will have this sort of like intent for what the show is supposed to what this episode's supposed to do and all that stuff. Um and the way that I arrive at these there's a few different ways that but one of them does involve a sort of cryptographic method where I write it out, you know, write out the intent and then do a operation where I roll some dice in order to pick which mm -hmm. of these letters I'll be using. I'm not going to say exactly how it works, but I roll some yeah, dice. Yeah, don't and tell us how it works. This is so cool. 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I roll some dice and, and through, you know, the, the numbers I get in the dice, like I'll count out which of these letters in this statement are going to be used and I circle those. Mm-hmm. And then I read them out in just the NATO phonetic alphabet because it kind of blends in with some of the oh. other elements that I have. So yeah, it's kind of a fun way to go. That is really cool. I was just thinking of a way this would only make noise, but it might be possible to use one of these methods to sort of like encode a message over a musical scale. I don't know. I Now now I'm going to have to go play with that. See, yeah. look what you've done. There, are, there actually <laughs> is some stuff like that on chaostarot.com. Um, Matt over oh. there did build us a sound sigil, or I think it's a, it's a sound. I'll have to look at exactly what it's being called. But yeah, there is a tool there for making sigils that are related to sound. See, that would be really cool. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely play with that. Like I, I enjoy doing those sorts of musical I mean, I haven't done anything as as sophisticated as like encoding a sigil like that, but I, I do enjoy kind of making background music or or musical themes in my podcast episodes also that are kind of related to things somehow. So there are these musical modes that are each tied to the different planets, and so sometimes I will create some sort of background stuff that is played in that mode. Yes, uh, I do that too. Yes, I like to, to bring yeah. in some planetary stuff. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I think this is a really interesting thing for listeners to pay attention to because I don't know how many occult podcasters are actually doing that sort of thing, but it probably isn't just us. Yeah, I'm guessing that, you know, my friend Keats Ross over at the Pragmagic podcast and the We the Hollow. I mean, my friend Keats Ross. Oh, well, our friend Keats Ross. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be both of our friends. Shout out to you, Keith. Um, yeah, I know that he's done some really interesting stuff with sound magic and yeah, all kinds of stuff. I'd be shocked if he wasn't, you know, working some of that into his uh, his pod and everything. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've heard him talk about it a little bit before. Like he's definitely done some, some audio sigils and some sort of hyper sigil type stuff with his music. I'll have to reach out to him and see. Yeah, he's got some new stuff out there. Um, what is it? It's called Sine Wave Serpents, which is really cool. I'll put a link to that mm. in the show notes. People can check it out. Excellent. I'll have to go look that up too. I think I just crammed all of my cryptographic intro stuff into that uh, that long ramble. Uh, do you have quest- any more questions about it? Like, do you want to know anything else about the secrets that numbers may hold? I think we covered a lot there. Let's talk. We did. Yeah, I, real quick. I want to let people know that they can hear... Reverend Eric and I have another conversation on the Artomancy podcast where I I feel like did a not a great job explaining chaos magic. I, you know, it was but, chaotic, but it, it was it, very uh, chaotic. We did it as sort of I, I feel like it, when I was sort of thinking back over it, like I realized that we had done a kind of a kind of shell conversation where we started talking about chaos magic, then we started talking about something else, then we started talking about something else, and then on the way out, we hit chaos magic again. Absolutely. So yeah, next time, um, just, if you ask me, I will be more prepared and be more organized. No, no it, it was my fault. I did. It's me. I, look, uh, I I was the interviewer. It's my job to keep you on track and to make sure that we cover things in the right. You know, I. It's, and besides, it was a conversation. I thought it was a great time. I had a really fun time. So one thing that did come up then was uh-huh. this idea of an electric sex guitar. Yes, I think that 
exact phrase that I wrote down. Haunted sex guitar. Haunted sex guitar. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, you know, since you like to produce music and I like to produce music, maybe we could make some kind of a collaborative track called Haunted Sex Guitar sometime. I think I just want to put that out there for uh, into the ether. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a brilliant idea and we absolutely need to do this. Haunted Sex Guitar. Absolutely. I'm very here for it. Okay. Well, I love it. Okay. That's a great segue into maybe into the prime numbers because (laughs) (laughs) the prime numbers are very interesting and there's all kinds of, man, just layers of mystery involved there. There is. Hey, what's up? It's me, Luxa from the future. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I wanted to give a shout out real quick to Matt from chaostarot.com. I use the site and the Trinary web app all the time when I'm creating sigilized images for the show and the Green Mushroom Project and for my personal work as well. So it's a great free resource that chaos magicians and occultists of all stripes might enjoy using. And there's a link to that in the show notes where you can search for chaostarot.com. Also check the show notes for a link to Sine Wave Serpents, which is the new project that Keats Ross has been working on, and it's very cool. I'm hoping to talk with him about that soon. But now I'm going to go ahead and share most of an article from New Scientist about John Dee. As I mentioned before, I think it's fun to see how the work and life of a historical figure who is typically associated with the occult are depicted by those outside of that realm of study. Although I guess the statement I just made does assume that the author of this article, Philip Ball, is not a student of the occult, and I do not know this person's life, so that might not be true. If you're listening, Phil, let us know. And a quick note to my U.S. listeners who have never spoken with folks from over the pond or whatever about numbers before, the term math and maths are interchangeable. All right, so let's hear what Philip Ball has written about John D. It starts out with a quote. The book of nature is written in the language of mathematics, claimed Galileo. His full argument is actually more complicated than this, but philosophers, scientists, and historians have seized on this statement to characterize the, quote, true science. No branch of natural philosophy could call itself a science until it had become mathematical. There is only that much genuine science in any science, as it contains mathematics, asserted Immanuel Kant in the 18th century. Physicist Stephen Wernberg seems to agree. The birth of modern science and the scientific revolution of the 17th century was, quote, the search for mathematically expressed impersonal laws that allow precise predictions of a wide range of phenomenon, he wrote in his book, to explain the world, the discovery of modern science. One person who would have welcomed Galileo's statement, had he not lived half a century too early to witness it, was the English scholar John Dee who lived from 1527 to 1608 or 1609. Yet Dee doesn't appear in most histories of science, and some of Galileo's champions might regard him with a degree of horror. Dee is more or less uncharacterizable by today's standards. Some of his Tudor contemporaries might have considered him a philosopher, an astrologer, perhaps even a magician, but they would have argued that he was, above all, a mathematician. And what did Dee do with maths? He created horoscopes, practiced numerology and alchemy, and sought occult codes that would permit conversations with angels in the language used by Adam. Dee is, in short, 
The worst nightmare for those who want to tell the history of science along the same lines as Weinberg. To them, Dee's work looks like mumbo-jumble, superstition, and mysticism. Yet, it was fundamentally mathematical. Dee's eclectic interests are explored in an exhibition of his books at the Royal College of Physicians in London. These books are a few pitiful remnants of the legendary library at his home in Mortlake, before many of its contents were pilfered while he was traveling abroad. The apocryphal story has it that the library was ransacked and torched by a mob who suspected him of demonic witchcraft. Among the volumes on display is the first English translation of the influential mathematical treatise by ancient Greek writer Euclid, here called The Elements of Geometry, published in 1570 by Henry Billingsley, Lord Mayor of London. It's a gorgeous volume, with elaborate fold-out diagrams of polyhedra and intersecting planes, and Dee wrote the preface. That he was chosen for the task indicates the esteem in which his mathematical expertise was held. What's striking to modern readers about that essay is, first, that Dee considers it necessary to mount a defense of maths, and second, the breadth that he attributes to the discipline. Many people, Dee says, consider maths to be disreputable and allied with witchcraft. Indeed, some of the suspicion aroused by Nicolas Copernicus's De Revolution Omnibus in 1543 came not from his heliocentric theory of the solar system, but from the fact that he used maths to deduce what he could not directly see. In Tudor times, maths books were often burned on suspicion of being conjuring books. And maths really did have connections with the occult. Numerology was important to the Jewish mystical tradition called Kabbalah, which Dee studied closely. Codes and cryptography were discussed in Steganographia, circa 1499, by the German abbot Trifemius, who was suspected of diabolical wizardry. And it was this book that Dee examined to understand angelic communication. Even as late as 1651, Francis Bacon's friend and biographer, John Raleigh, was accused of conjuring when he used geometry to calculate the height of a steeple. This kind of accusation isn't fair, Dee argued. Maths is both useful and a source of hidden knowledge. He quotes the Italian Renaissance scholar Giovanni Pico della Mirandella, quote, By number, a way is had to the searching out and understanding of everything able to be known. End quote. The wonders described in Dee's preface were so captivating that, according to historian Peter Zetterberg, many readers were probably disappointed by the elements itself with its pedestrian tone and topics. In particular, Dee says, Maths is a practical discipline, used for technologies such as hydraulics and surveying. Geometry, he reminds us, means land measuring. It was also needed to make ingenious mechanisms, a popular art at the time. Practically-minded virtuosi made their living by creating such devices for the princes and nobles of Europe, and Dee himself was said to have made a giant mechanical beetle for a play at Trinity College in Cambridge that astonished audiences. And for these... And such like marvelous arts and feats naturally, mathematically, and mechanically wrought and contrived, ought any student and modest Christian philosopher be counted as a conjurer? Dee asked. Mechanisms like this were considered in those days to be allied with a tradition called natural magic, in which the invisible forces of nature were harnessed to work wonders. In 1648, the Englishman John Wilkins, warden of the Wadham College in Oxford, where he convened the group of philosophers who later became the Royal Society, published a book called Mathematical Magic. The title might lead you to expect either a collection of think-of-a-number party tricks or a treatise on numerology. In fact, it was a textbook of mechanisms. Levers, wheels, pulleys, screws, clocks, windmills, 
and even submarines. Dee personifies this natural magic tradition. For some, he was the archetypical Elizabethan magus, using a crystal ball with the help of shady sidekick Edward Kelly to speak with angels or demons. It's possible that Shakespeare used Dee as the model for Prospero in The Tempest. But the giants of the scientific revolution took him and his vision of mathematics seriously. Wilkins's mathematical magic, inspired by Dee's work, was one of the young Isaac Newton's favorite books, and Dee's preface was widely read throughout the 17th century. Robert Hooke defended Dee's angelic discourses when they were published posthumously, saying that they must be encrypted intelligence messages sent to the British court while Dee was abroad. Dee prefigured 17th century scholar occultists such as Englishman Robert Flood and the German Jesuit Athanasius Kircher, who discerned mystical, hidden knowledge in nature's workings while also exploring natural phenomena and mechanical inventions. If this all sounds a little like the mix we find in Isaac Newton, too, you have got the right idea. That's why Dee is a noteworthy figure in the history of science, and his example stands as a warning. If we cherry-pick from the time when Renaissance magic was morphing into modern science, we will never understand what that extraordinary time was really about. Alright, fuck yeah, thank you so much to New Scientist and Philip Ball for that. As we return for the rest of my chat with Reverend Eric, we will talk about the prime numbers and ways that we use math in our practices. After the interview, we will do listener mail and an update about the Green Mushroom Project. But now, because it's going to come up and also because it would make me happy, let us talk about what happy numbers and happy prime numbers are. I will paraphrase from Wikipedia here. Okay, so in number theory, a happy number is a number which eventually reaches one when replaced by the sum of the square of each digit. So let's take 13, for example, which is a happy number. All right, so let's take each of the digits, one and three, and square them. So one to the power of two, one squared, is still one. Three squared is nine. Okay, so we squared both of them. Now let's add them together. So we've got one plus nine, that gives us 10. Now we've got 10, okay, so let's take the digits there. We've got one and we've got zero. So we're gonna square both of those. One to the power of two is still one and zero to the power of zero is still zero. So we have just one remaining and 13 is a happy number. So four on the other hand is not happy because when we play the same game with it, we get 16 and then 37 and eventually we reach four. So this is an example of a number which is not happy, and it's called a sad or unhappy number. <laughs> so in more general terms, um, and this is a kind of simplification of this, a happy number is a natural number that eventually reaches one when iterated over the perfect digital invariant function for squaring, or p equals two, so squaring the stuff. Okay, so a happy prime number is a number that is both happy and prime. Unlike would be the case with happy numbers, rearranging the digits of a happy prime will not necessarily create another happy prime, whereas rearranging the digits in a happy normal number typically would. So the origin of happy numbers is not clear. Happy numbers were brought to the attention of Reg Allenby, a British author and senior lecturer of pure mathematics at Leeds University, by his daughter, who had learned of them at school. However, they, quote, might have originated in Russia. <laughs> All right, thanks Wikipedia. That does not fucking satisfy, but also I kind of like the mystery that surrounds this origin of happy numbers. I didn't get the chance to do much research into this at all. So if you know what the origin is, 
or some of the story of happy numbers, let me know. You can write to me at lexacultpod at gmail.com or get me on Instagram at lexacultpod. All right, let us now return to more of my chat with Reverend Eric, as well as more holiday music from the HP Lovecraft Historical Society's Very Spooky Solstice. Why, why do you love the primes? And actually, maybe we should real quick define what the prime numbers are for people that might not remember their, okay. um, you know, lessons back perhaps very long ago. <laughs> a, a prime number is a number that could only be cleanly divided by one and itself. So good examples are like three and five and seven. Bad examples are, you know, six and nine and four mm-hmm. and all that other stuff. There's, 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 there are fewer prime numbers than there are whole numbers, but it's basically a whole number that can only be divided by one in itself. They're significant in one of the reasons that they're, that they're, that they were significant to me is that prime numbers are very, very vital to how uh, modern electronic cryptography works. Like you can't really do most of our cryptographic functions, you know, like SSL and all that kind of stuff without prime numbers. And and finding out if a number is prime is one of those really, really difficult math problems that we haven't been able to figure out super well. Uh, anybody who's into like overclocking their computer or doing like, you know, computer stress testing or something is probably probably knows about like the Prime 95 program, which is sort of a collaborative effort to calculate larger and larger prime numbers or or determine larger and larger prime numbers, which it turns out is like just so mathematically intensive. It's one of basically like the hard problems that makes cryptography possible. Uh, little prime numbers are easy to calculate. Like you can figure out pretty quickly that seven is prime because there's only a few things to test. And then as prime numbers get bigger and more complicated, or as they start to have relationships with each other, just like with any sort of polyamorous situation it gets weird and complicated and difficult to define and nobody ever knows exactly what's going on i hope you don't get hate mail for that one (laughs) 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 people should live as they please (laughs) they should i agree (laughs) prime numbers on the other hand really have to follow rules which is which is tough but um but yeah i mean there are all sorts of different uh, ways to look at prime numbers like there are mersenne primes there are happy primes there are relationships between prime numbers which end up being uh, sort of like mathematically significant and so i guess i just sort of enjoy thinking about them because because again they kind of they kind of relate back to this concept of like number as a language for describing the universe number and math seem to be something that Here's 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 the question that I think that we kind of have to run into when we when we encounter something like a prime number. Did us humans invent math or did we discover it? And if we discovered it, why are parts of it so weird? <laughs> like, or no, if we invented it, why are parts of it so weird? If we discovered it also, why do some parts of it make so much sense and some parts of it fall apart? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about this. This is one of those 
questions upon which I like to obsess. Yeah. And where, you know, where I'm at right now with it is interesting. Like, so a lot of modern, you know, cognitive scientists will point to, you know, something like the work of like Lakoff and Nunez, like, which is where mathematics come from is a book they put out. But in, you know, this idea that mathematics is arrived at through cognitive functioning, through symbolic metaphor, you know, through just really like real world things like counting apples, counting whatever, and mm-hmm. arriving at this stuff. It's not this sort of like top down, you know, coming from above in this platonic way that we sort of discover. But what I think is interesting about this story is that like within this like, you know, very materialistic viewpoint, we're still interacting with the larger world. So like the 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 maps that we're drawing still have to do with what's going on outside. So to me, it almost seems like more of like an Ouroboros kind of situation where it's not like a yeah. one way or the other. It's a really much more of like a interchange. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I guess that's a good way to look at it. It's sort of like humanity's, humanity's conversation with the cosmos. Yeah. Math is like our interface like the language Mm -hmm. that we can use to interface with it and i don't know interface might not be the right word no 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 totally use that word because it totally backs up my argument that every magician needs to know math (laughs) doesn't it perhaps (laughs) i mean it it kind of brings it back around right like magicians occultists magicians you know chaos magicians whoever like one of the things that we're always trying to do is change the nature of reality or or change something about the universe to to operate you know in a way we want and like what better way to do that than to speak the universe's language yeah absolutely it's what magicians have been looking for forever totally and just real quick to like kind of hammer home the idea that like your folks might already be using these concepts in their practices without sort of like thinking about it a lot look at something like the tarot that has this you know very sort of organized system right and within the pip cards there's this sort of like call out to our ideas about numbers right like the twos Mm -hmm. are about choices about dualities about you know like this or that in their respective house you know it will mean different things right the three is about emergence of a new thing you know three of cups is about ah new births and great times with friends you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. uh, the four is about stability right like this is the first time the four is like such a special number this is the first time we have this even division like it's this incredibly stable you know you think about a house you think about like it's a perfect it's a perfect square yeah exactly five fucks that all up right (laughs) disruption of this um so yeah i just i think that you know these kinds of principles are really sort of baked into so much of what we do and so yeah there's no reason to be shy or afraid of them exactly i totally i'm yeah as you know i am in agreement (laughs) (laughs) i guess um i i have a difficult time really bringing prime numbers around to 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 something that I use like directly in my magic, but they're definitely something that I ponder and play with and think about a lot. Yeah, I get really excited when I I turn a prime number a year, you know, because it happens with sort of a, at an irregular rate. You know, you don't get a lot of prime number birthdays. So I just had one and I was very excited. Happy but, late uh, birthday, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's it's uh, it's not quite yet been a month, so it, you're not super late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've used the prime numbers 
in a sort of meditative way. I've recorded myself like reading them out loud for, you know, maybe uh -huh. 15 minutes and then like listen to it and, you know, just use it as sort of a sound concentration meditation and just meditated on them and oh. their relationships with each other. There's actually, you can hear some of it in the most recent album I put out. I put some of these number tracks in there because they definitely have that sort of like, you know, hypnotic quality to them and everything. So, yeah. yeah. That is cool. That's a good idea. Yeah, I guess um, one of the things that I enjoy is like there are all these sort of prime adjacent ideas. So like happy primes. I can't remember exactly what defines a happy prime, but every once in a while I'll be like, oh, I should calculate some happy primes. And I'll look it up and I'll be like, OK, now I can figure out if this number is happy, if this number is happy. And so there are there are a number of um, methods you can <clears throat> excuse me. There's um there's only one method. I don't remember. I just don't remember uh, <laughs> what the equation is or why. It's okay. I can put why it in, I, in one of the breaks. I'll be like, this is what okay. happy prime is. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Free yeah, content. I, I, <laughs> I learned about happy primes from Doctor Who. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there was some episode where he was sort of like, uh, there was some number-based puzzle and he was like rattling off stuff about something. He's like, oh, yes, well, it's a happy prime. And I was like, what does that mean? And I went and looked it up and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> a new rabbit hole to explore <laughs> yep <laughs> very cool uh, so i appreciate you taking the time to come and hang out with me today is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to mention oh i feel you know um no i don't think so i think that anything else that we talked about would be no i think that was that was that was a good coverage i, I just i just want to encourage anybody who's listened and who's made it this far i'm not going to be bossy about this but i'm going to say i hope that this has encouraged you to rethink the way math could help and enhance your own mystical life like it doesn't have to be a way that you're doing magic it could be something that you're meditating on it could be something just pondering the nature of numbers heck take some time to go look up some pythagorean philosophy and see what he had to say about numbers and see if that changes your mind he was probably more eloquent than i am although he also hated beans so screw pythagoras <laughs> and that's that's <laughs> that's screw my pythagoras message <laughs> in our math episode <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, and I know that we spoke at length on your on your show, but if you have any questions for me, you are welcome to ask ask them now. I don't think I have any questions for you right now. I think that we we already had a really good conversation, and I would encourage people to go listen to it. And sure, it might be a little chaotic, but we were talking about chaos magic, and if chaos magic is a conversation in a straight line, is it chaos magic? Oh is yeah, it, that's my question. If you have a conversation magic? about chaos magic and it goes in a straight line, are you describing chaos magic? Hmm. I'm not sure. We'd have to run several experimental iterations to assess. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is we're going to need a lot of people who have no idea what chaos magic is. And then at the end, we're going to be like, do you understand it now? And the, and the mm. one who says, yes, that's the, probably the method that was wrong. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, where can people find your work? Uh, I have the, uh, the website, arnemancy.com, A-R-N-E-M-A-N-C-Y.com. Uh, and I'm also Arnemancy on Twitter, on Instagram, which I haven't been using very much, on Facebook, which I is just a one-way thing for me. I post things on Facebook, and then I never check and see programs that just I do too. shoves things over there. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I'm also on Mastodon, uh, Arnemancy at uh, pagan.plus. And also, I'm uh, Reverend Eric on, on Discord. And I'm sure if you're on a 
occult discord server i might be there and feel free to tag me and tell me how much you love math if yeah you hate if you're math, on the green mushroom server you can find you can find eric there yeah if you hate math don't tell me tell luxa but if you like math you can tell me yes you can cry to me about your mathematical woes uh, at luxacultpod <laughs> at gmail.com or at luxacultpod on instagram <laughs> Include some fist shaking. What were you thinking? An episode about mathematics? What is this? YouTube? I wanted to indulge myself. Sorry. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a blast. I've I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm just tickled that somebody wants to ask me about mathematics. And, um, and every time I hear about... A magician who's like, oh, I did this math thing and I suddenly was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. It makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. It's almost like drinking hot cocoa on a cold winter day. Yeah, absolutely. There's this whole other layer of interesting stuff happening that you might be missing out on if you're not looking for it. So, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You too. Thank you so much. Madness, Lorraine, terror, and pain Woes without end where they extend Paper of fools, bound by the rules Where they love them, planet has a dense Time's badly burning, on and a chill Yoda, returning season of doomsday Scary, 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 All right. Fuck yeah. Thank you so much to Reverend Eric. Thanks as well to All in All. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to their stuff, as well as to the albums Solstice by Nahadith and Very Scary Solstice by the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. I really appreciate being able to nerd out hardcore with you all. There's much more good stuff to come here, including listener mail and a pretty metal holiday poem written by H.P. Lovecraft, which I felt was appropriate to share in this episode. But before that, let me remind you to check out the other great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Administrism, Grognostics, Primordia, XV Planus, Ed Hack History, Smuts Up, and Unearthing Paranormalcy. If you like the show and you're into what I'm doing, you can support it on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, and that will entitle you to take a bibliomancy break with me. If you're more into doing a one-time donation thing, you can do that on buymeacoffee.com. Word of mouth is very huge, for sure, so you can definitely help out a lot by telling a friend, an enemy, a family member, colleague, random stranger on the internet about the show or post about it on social media. Big thanks to everybody who's been showing their support. It really helps and it really means a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So you can now get your very own Luxcult Hello Void merch printed on demand using the most eco-friendly options I could find. Links to that in the show notes or visit IlluminIndustries.com. It is the holiday gift giving season. So let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Want to get an important message across, but having trouble finding the right words? Wish your gift could express that special sentiment you feel for your partner, friend, coworker, family member, pet psychic, crossing guard, meth dealer, or boss? Now there's a way that your special message can go directly to your gift recipient without them even realizing it. Introducing Sublimitext, the gift card service that works on the subconscious level to let that special someone know exactly what they mean to you. 
For a flat fee of just $6.66, the Sublimitex service can be added to any Illumin Select gift order and delivered right to the recipient's door. Also available in audio form. Sublimitex is so seamlessly integrated into the consciousness of the recipient, I bet you didn't even realize that we put one right in this ad. P.S. The message is, I love you. And you'll love Sublimitex or your money back. See Illumin Industries Cyber Catalog for details. All right, good, good. All right, update about the Green Mushroom Project. As you might have noticed, the zine Fuck Around and Find Out Offerings of Magical Sovereignty from the Green Mushroom Project is now available digitally for free. You can check the show notes for a link to that, or you can go to greenmushroomproject.com to find it there as well. I'm so excited for tonight's 23 Yule party in which we will celebrate the holiday season, read the scripture that we discovered with the 23 Bibliomancy experiment, tell spooky stories, and honestly, I'm not sure what else because um, most of this is going to be a surprise to me and I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you so much to everybody who's working on putting that together and I just can't wait to see how it goes. Fuck yeah. I'm also excited about Tarot Club, which will be starting in January. We're going to be continuing book club, of course, and we're also going to be having the first of our discussions about the topic of sex magic soon on the server as well. Uh, There's all kinds of other fun workshops, rituals, and other things planned, so definitely come check it out if you are curious. All right, let's do some listener mail. sort of blanket statement here going forward because everybody that's written in has always been very kind and nice and so just a sort of general response here would be to say thank you so much for the kind words everybody much appreciated cheers to cecile if you're hearing this episode i hope it made you smile stoked to read some bibliomancy for you soon hello to david we're excited to have you check out the book club to answer your question I think I would consider releasing a collection of my poetry. I don't really see any reason not to. Um, And the essay that I'm writing to go along with my most recent music album has several poems included in the track notes too, so that's kind of a start, and I will think more about it. Much love to you and yours as well. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed Reverend Eric's and I's chat about mathematics as much as I did. I recently asked some folks on the Green Machine Discord server in what ways, if any, they like to use math in their practices. If you are a math magician or like to use math for magic or other adjacent things, write to me at luxacultpod at gmail.com and let me know about it. You can also find me at luxacultpod on Instagram. So here are some of the responses I got. Dave from the Unearthing Paranormalcy podcast let us know that he's been playing with some geometry stuff that you can find in Visions by Yates. I included the links that he shared about that in case people want to check it out. I didn't get the chance to get too far into it, but it looks really fucking cool. Josh the Stampede mentioned Pythagoras and the Tetrad, or Tectactris. I will paraphrase Wikipedia here. This is a triangular figure consisting of 10 points arranged in four rows, one, two, three, and four points in each row. So basically looks like a picture of a pyramid drawn with 10 dots. It is the geometrical representation of the fourth triangular number. As a side note, the triangular numbers are on their own a very cool and interesting rabbit hole to go down. As a mystical symbol, the tetrad or tetractus was very important to the secret worship of Pythagoreanism. 
There was four seasons, and the number was also associated with planetary motions and music, etc. Fuck yeah. Other folks on the server weighed in with their favorite number. Fours and threes seemed super popular. Frider Shipdown let us know that he's been super into hexagons lately and mostly uses math aesthetically, which I feel like ties in really well with some of what we talked about in today's episode. Aesthetics are important. And as Reverend Eric pointed out, like one of the reasons that we're obsessed with these kind of shapes not only are because they have like these aesthetic qualities, they also have these mathematical properties. And I think that there's a lot of um, overlap there between aesthetics and math. And yeah, it's just really interesting. Anyway, fuck yeah. Uh, Johnny Nada had the following to say about the topic. Mostly an aesthetic, I think, but I use numbers as another vector for encoding meaning. When I make foo sigils, I might repeat certain symbols a certain number of times to get at the symbolism of the number or to match things. And I use gematria to determine the seed number when I'm doing magical stuff with AI. I use magic squares in sigil crafting for discovering vocus magica as well. These are like barbarous words, like, you know, magic words, anyway. Math really isn't a core practice for me, Johnny Nata says, but it's so easy for numbers to be another layer of meaning and can be added to anything. It's a spice that improves every ritual rather than a core ingredient. I use mantras for charging things and the number of repetitions also has a corresponding value. So yeah, fuck yeah, I see a lot of crossover with some of the stuff that I like to get out to. I think a lot about the seed number that I choose to use when I'm poking around with AI as well, so I love that. Cheers. All right. Let's get a little weird here. <laughs> Shout out to Durin. Very interesting questions, which I will now do my best to answer. <laughs> the first one. Ethereal advice. Do I really have to smoke meth to channel Hunter S. Thompson? Well, I'm going to say no. And in fact, I'd probably be inclined to advise against it, but you know what, my friend? You do you. <laughs> and this next question provides a lot of food for thought. Thanks again, Dern. Free will versus willpower. Do they either truly exist in our context of personal operation? Okay, so there's a lot of different aspects to this discussion and you know we could go on about this basically forever but so to address like the specific question in terms of how it was worded if i think free will can truly exist in the context of our personal operation i would say no i just don't think it makes sense to me that it would be like an either or binary thing it's like free will unhampered choice or whatever versus acting on i don't know the preset programs of our biomechanisms as we move through our environments or whatever verbiage we want to use there i suspect there might be a semantic thing at play in here for me too somewhere i'm not sure i fully understand the definition of free will so that's a problem here for me anyway but just like looking at things from the standpoint of logic it seems to me that we are far too close to the situation to be able to like step back enough to see the completeness of it clearly how could we build a set of knowledge which fully contains itself i don't think that is possible but who knows um further i would say to people like author sam harris the author of a book called free will in which he argues against it being a thing uh, just because we cannot build an apparatus to measure something does not mean that it does not exist and i also say this being fully aware that I'm making an ontological assertion, which I try to avoid. But there we have it, unavoidable sometimes. Anyway, in his book, Free Will, Harris's argument against the existence of the concept relies pretty heavily on the results of one study about how there is evidence to suggest that we make choices before we are aware of making choices. 
And in this particular instance, it had to do with like the part of the brain responsible for enacting the choice, which is basically like moving one of our arms, if I recall correctly, becoming active before the participant in the study said that they were aware of having made the choice. So taking this study, people are like, see, see, we don't have free will. And I'm just, I'm not going to go into the nuance of experimental design here, but I don't think that there is anywhere near enough evidence to like make that strong of a case about something so complicated. But what I found interesting about all this was that this, the studies does seem to suggest that there, we have a lot of like control in terms of like vetoing our impulses, like not doing the thing that we have the impulse to do. And somebody, and I can't remember where I read this, so apologies, but somebody made the quip that it doesn't appear as though we have much free will, but we definitely do seem to have free won't. So that's kind of fun. I like that. Uh, philosopher Daniel Dennett agrees with me, which I love. Uh, he made the point about this experiment that the EEG information is objective, right? It's coming from these machines, these measurements and stuff, while the information that the participant is providing about when they made the choice is pretty subjective. And there's all kinds of other like telephone games at play there in terms of like, I'm sure that you can think something much quicker than you can say it. Uh, there's all kinds of problems with just taking this and running with it as saying this is evidence that we don't have free will. Anyway, if we understand that there's a subjectivity in, in any time we have a person there sitting in front of us, it, it makes some of the information we gather less meaningful and therefore less valuable. So Dennett also questions if the neurological data provided by the study could be applied to anything more complex than just simple muscle movement. We would assume that making choices about, I don't know, what book to read next or where to go out to dinner or whatever it is might be more complex than deciding if you were to make an arbitrary choice of left versus right within the context of an experimental setting. Like this choice doesn't even have any like bearing on your life. So a lot of different problems with it anyway. In my opinion, ideologues like Sam Harris are often in the habit of taking concepts from science and cherry-picking or misreading or intentionally misrepresenting them in order to make their point. I sort of view this whole debate as being much more about religious conviction on the part of both the proponents and opponents than searching for meaning in a philosophically honest manner. I think that there have been times when I've been guilty of intellectually abusing some of the concepts that I'm into in a similar manner. I'm thinking about Goodell's incompleteness theorem, which I'm pretty sure I referenced within this fucking rant. And it's definitely something I'm trying to be more aware of and work on. But yeah, just because I don't believe in like big T truth doesn't mean I shouldn't strive for accuracy. Okay, end of rant. I have a lot more to say on this topic, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much to everybody who weighed in and sent me mail. I really appreciate all the kind words about the album. I'm not going to read that stuff here, but you all know who you are and I appreciate it. If you would like to send listener mail, you can do so at luxoccultpod at gmail.com or you can get me on Instagram at luxoccultpod. So here's a fun spooky holiday poem by H.P. Lovecraft. This was originally published in Weird Tales in 1926 under the title Yule Horror, and I guess it can also be found in other places titled Festival. There is snow on the ground, and the valleys are cold, and a midnight profound blackly squats over the world. But a light on the hilltops half seen hints of feastings unhallowed and old. There is death in the clouds, there is fear in the night, for the dead in their shrouds hail the sun's turning flight, and chant wild in the woods as they dance around a yule altar fungous and white. To no gale of earth's kind sways the forest of oak, where the sick boughs entwine by mad mistletoes choke, 
For these powers are the powers of the dark, from the grave of the lost druid folk. And mayst thou to such deeds be an abbot or priest, singing cannibal greeds at each devil-wrought feast, and to all the incredulous world, shewing dimly the sign of the beast. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> you can feel the palpable fear of the other that so much of Lovecraft's work engenders in this piece. In what ways are these fears, or any other fear for that matter, projections of what we are afraid to see in ourselves and must therefore lash out against externally? What would it be like to be honest about and embrace these things instead? It's natural to want to pin things down. This suggests the illusion of safety, which can be desperately useful. But beyond this illusion lies another scenario, where the only fixed constant seems to be an absence of such a constant. All is in flux. All is in motion. The Big Bang, or whatever other creation story you're partial to, is not something that happened. It's still happening. In order to, as Roger Zalarni says, see beauty bare, we must look through Lobachevsky's eyes. We might do this by, like Lobachevsky, challenging the axioms we were handed down from antiquity, questioning authority, and remembering that when we try to draw a straight line in this reality, we instead end up with an arc. Linearity is a lie. Remember to resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Reverend Eric, to All in All, to Adam Matlock and the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, and most of all, thanks so much to you for listening. Happy holidays. This is Lux Estrada reminding you to stay strong and stay fucking curious. It's the most horrible time of the year With the nights getting longer, the evil is stronger And there's much to fear It's the most horrible time of the year It's the unhappiest season of all when your knuckles are widening from visions so frightening You must not recall It's the unhappiest season of all Great Cthulhu is calling And Saturday's falling And cultists are roaming the land With the darkness descending Our destinies bending To forces we can't understand It's the most horrible time of the year There'll be ritual killing and omens fulfilling as old ones appear It's the most horrible time of the year Lux Occult is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network are you tired of other so-called energy drinks leaving you stuck at start while your opponents level up Try Demon Semen, new from Blastastic. With five patented ampers plus a spicy kick of cayenne, Demon Semen will have you blasting to the next level. Don't have time to guzzle the whole bottle? Sometimes I just spray it all over my face for a quick pick-me-up between bosses. Demon Semen by Blastastic. It's conquest in a can. 
Blastastic. Get blasted. Demon Semen and Blastastic are registered trademarks of Illumin Industries. All rights reserved. Available wherever narcotics are sold. See label for possible side effects. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. My name is Flood, and I am the host of XV Planets, a bi-weekly podcast of the odd and unusual. The core of XV Planets is a documentary-style exploration into paranormal investigations that I and my ever-evolving group of magical misfits conduct. We take a look at the history, the mystery, then go see it for ourselves, and then we bring that experience, and on occasion, that evidence, to your ears. Alongside the investigations, you'll find a treasure trove of other content, like interviews with authors, art historians, mediums, UFO researchers, cryptid hunters, fellow paranormal investigators, as well as deep dives into the arts, exploring topics like the killing joke frontman Jazz Coleman's magical practices, and how that propelled the band forward, and whether or not David Lynch was really conducting occult rituals through Twin Peaks The Return. So follow XV Planets today and get caught up on the journey, because I can promise you, it only gets stranger from here. I'll see you on the fifth plane. Epic history. Like the Greeks are like on the beach, they're like doing burpees or something. <laughs> the Persians sail up, and they've got like they've got like little spears and pomegranates and stuff, and they're like, hey, wanna be part of our cool empire? In-depth commentary. Cutting edge expert drunken analysis. <laughs> two people that you don't know anything about. It's ad hoc history with Asher and Luxa siblings extraordinaire hey just real quick like if you were emperor would you choose me as second emperor uh (laughs) (laughs) next question learning it's not pretty it's not nice and if you want to talk about justification for war and all these things but when you get to how the sausage is actually made this is it it's ad hoc history It's not the history podcast you wanted. It's the history podcast you deserve.